Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 28th, 2010. I feel like I'm one of the, on one of those um, instant coffee commercials. We've switched Chris's normal coffee with Folgers Crystals. See if he can tell if it's instant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's I'm drinking instant coffee at the moment. Don't ask why. It's just best if you don't ask questions like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, unfortunately, as, uh, people seem to think that whatever burbles up from with deep within them, whatever they think that has apparently laid on their heart <laughs> uh, is the thing that they're supposed to be preaching and teaching from the pulpit. Oh, contraire. No, 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 no. What the job of the pastor is, is to <clears throat> get this, preach the word. Yeah, it's true. It's what they're supposed to do. And uh, as a, if they would do that, you know, you know, Begin with the text, let the text speak, and, then, and if there's any clarity that needs to be added to the text so that you understand what God was communicating in context, they, you know, they're you know, skilled at hermeneutics and exegesis and expository preaching. Instead, it seems like the, um, the standard fare nowadays, and I'm always thankful for the pastors that don't do this. Uh, they, they seem to be a dying breed, but the standard fare for the, uh, the pastors uh, you know, that are the the hip cool the ones who are who are apparently experiencing the blessings of god because they have quote numerical growth um you know because that always proves everything you know <clears throat> you know islam's growing really rapidly by the way around the world i didn't know if you knew that um you know does that mean that islam is being blessed of god <laughs> if you ask some p- folks in the emergent church <laughs> they'd go yeah and uh, in fact, uh, tomorrow on the program, I'm hoping to get to some of the <clears throat> interesting stories where so-called, well, where purpose-driven um, organizations are well, are referring to Muslims as our, our, our Christian brothers. Yeah, I, I'm not making this up, and and trying to you know, confirm a couple of things. But but anyway, it's something we'll, hopefully we'll talk about tomorrow. But anyway, the the thing is, is that. Um, 
the job of the pastor is to preach the word and it isn't supposed to stray from it, supposed to, you know, stay on task. And ex- it, but people nowadays, I mean, they're they're off just in bizarro world, you know, uh, making stuff up and, uh, and and teaching all kinds of weird, weird things. And uh, and so where the pastors who are actually, well, you know, they open up the Bible. They they have maybe a lectionary that they follow. So it's yeah. Listen, this <clears throat> what we review here at Fighting for the Faith on the sermon reviews is an argument in favor of a lectionary. Now you're thinking lectionary. Well, I I've heard this term before. I'm I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. Well, think of it this way: is uh, and you know I I know for a fact that you know Baptists used to do this, that Methodists used to do this, some still do. Lutherans they're supposed to be doing this if they're in the LCMS. And the idea is is that there's a well there's a standard set of read, readings that uh, that the pastor's supposed to be preaching on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so um, in, the, in the Missouri Synod, which I'm a member of, um, we have a one-year track and we have a three-year track. So the idea is, is that if, you, if you're on the three-year track, that uh, you won't hear, the, the pastor won't preach on the exact same gospel passage every year. He'll, he'll preach on a particular passage every three years. But there's a rhythm to the, you know, to the year as far as you know, what's being preached on. And uh, and but the, the, here's the idea behind it, uh, at least one of the ideas. It protects you from the whims of your pastor. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, it takes away the pastor's um, uh, creativity. And you're going, oh, that sounds terrible. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, creativity seems to be the enemy of sound doctrine. And uh, and <laughs> and so. Um, I, you know, I, the the more I do this program, and the more I see the train wreck that is uh, that that is evangelical ish preaching nowadays, the more I'm thinking, yeah, if you 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 you, you want to put your pastor in a straitjacket, yeah, you you want to absolutely tie that guy down, and uh, and take away the um, take away his imagination, yeah, he's not. Pastors, uh, uh, in fact, in the kingdom of God, when it comes to preaching, creativity is not a good thing. Uh, and you don't get bonus points and brownie points for actually being creative. No, creativity usually along with that, well, <clears throat> um, comes uh, kind of the entertainment mentality as well as, um, well, all the bizarre stuff that we hear people saying in the name of God and um, that we have to clean up here at Fighting for the Faith. So, yeah, I, I'm. I'm the more the more I uh, study uh, what's what's happening and what's going wrong in the church, the more I am convinced that uh, you you want to go to a church not only where the pastor is bound to preach the word of God and actually does that, but that he's also bound to stick to a predetermined set of texts, and you take away uh, you take away his um, creativity. And you 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 basically want the guy to excel at exegesis, at great hermeneutics, at expository preaching, and then you won't have the um, the tyranny of creativity, which really, if you think about it, um, isn't really very creative at all, um, because uh, I don't know. <laughs> 
one of the the lines I heard at Perry Noble's uh, leadership conferences is, well, what works here at New Spring may not work in your church. And uh, of course, of course, you know, because what works in, in Seattle, you know, that, that may not work in Chicago. And, and, and what works in uh, in Chicago will pro- probably won't work in Alabama. And, you know, and yet <clears throat> um, I have been to pretty much all of the um, large um seeker driven purpose driven churches now over the past over the past few years as i've been traveling to these different conferences hosted by the major seeker driven and purpose driven churches and you know what they all look exactly the same and they're all doing pretty much the exact same thing yeah you know standard seeker driven purpose driven church you ready here it is it's a big um rectangular building that looks like um uh, you know uh, it's related to Home Depot or Lowe's um when you walk inside there is large there's theater style seating some of them have cup holders and some of them don't and there's a big rock and roll stage and then on either side of the rock and roll stage there's huge ginormous jumbotrons Mm-hmm. And and for the most part, there's no crosses on these campus. Yeah, Perry Nobles Church, I couldn't find a cross. Yeah, I didn't see a cross nowhere, no how. Yeah, no, mm, nope, there wasn't a cross. In fact, I mean, to be blunt, um, Perry Nobles Church, well, it looked exactly like uh, Willow Creek, you know, uh, which – and it looked a lot like Carrie Shook's church, you know, the – you know the fellowship of the woodlands and 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 in and, 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 and a lot of ways it looked you know a lot like saddleback and um yeah um yet they tell you oh yeah we're being contextual and we you know we're uh you know what 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 works here in anderson south carolina probably won't yet the standard service at the seeker driven church is pretty much the same thing Everybody stands up for 30 minutes while there's a big rock and roll show that goes on. Um, you know, and then at the end of the rock and roll show, um, then what happens is the pastor comes out and gives a self-help, uh, make your life better, make a difference in the world kind of pep talk kind of thing with ripped out of context Bible verses and with, you know, with the, they give you a handout with fill in the blank, you know, uh, things for you to take notes. I mean, I mean, I mean, what happened, that happens at Willow Creek. It happens at, uh, at, um, Granger community. I mean, they, they all look the same to me. I don't see a smidge of difference. Not, no, no difference at all. None. And yet they claim that they're all different. No, they're all the same. It, it, they're all identical except for size because some churches, uh, well, they're able, you know, they live in, uh, they, they exist in large urban, suburban areas and they're able to draw, you know, 25, 30,000 people on a weekend. And then some of them, you know, like, you know, Anderson, I think, I think Anderson only, you know, has, you know, 17, 18,000 people total. And so, uh, you know, they draw from Greenville, South Carolina, as well as Anderson. And, you know, any given you know Sunday, what they're pulling in between seven, eight, nine, ten thousand people, you know, something like that. But it's the same thing. Yet they claim, oh, they're so different. Anyway, 
I just had to get that off my chest. Uh, that was my opening <clears throat> thoughts for the day. All right, moving along to what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going it's, I'm going to switch gears here in a moment, and I'm going to answer an email regarding baptism. This is a question that I, I get frequent emails uh, regarding baptism, and um, I, 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 I'm beginning to realize that I'm going to have to make sure that I come back to this topic on a semi-regular basis so that people don't have to dig through the archives and listen to every single edition of Fighting for the Faith to hear, uh, uh, you know, the, my thought, what I think the Bible's teaching on baptism. Um, and, uh, you know, something that we'll have to come back to. And so uh, the, I, I figured uh, with, the, with this particular email, it gives me an opportunity to talk about it again and, uh, you know, make it so that it's something fresh. Although, you know, Ben Mordecai, yeah, Ben Mordecai. He used to be, we used to refer to him as young Ben Mordecai. Then he got married. And, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to call him that anymore. I think he's listened to every single episode of Fighting for the Faith. I mean, uh, if, if you read his uh, Twitter stream, and uh, he's one of the guys I actually do subscribe to that isn't a heretic. Yeah, I just want to let you know. Most of the people that uh, I follow on Twitter, they're heretics. Okay, there are a few that are not. And so you don't automatically assume that if I'm following somebody on Twitter that they're a heretic. Ben Mordecai, no, he's not a heretic. Anyway, uh, you know, he's listened to every one of them, so he could probably tell you better than I do what I believe uh, the, the scriptures are teaching regarding baptism. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, got a uh, got an extreme prophetic uh, XP Media video. Um, uh, one of the gals there is... Um, talking about vision. So I thought I'd play that today. It's a short little video and um, it doesn't make a bit of sense, but uh, we'll listen to that. Um, and then headlines today I want to talk about. I'm a little bit behind on what I want to talk about, but uh, you know what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury says, no problem with gay bishops. I want to talk about this and kind of show you one, what, what the problem here is. Um, uh, we got news regarding those um, Christian spree, uh, street preachers who were arrested at the Arab Fest up there in uh, in uh, Michiganistad, and uh, anyway, I I, I want to read that story. I got a Spurgeon quote on the offense of the cross that I want to uh, read to you today, and then on our sermon review, um, yeah, we're going to I'm going to be reviewing. Uh, one of the latest sermons by Stephen Furtick. And you're thinking, are you picking on Stephen Furtick? No, I just think that this is a timely thing to do in light of the fact that his uh, Sun Stand Still book is out now, and he's now preaching a sermon series on Sun Stand Still. And I want to get out into the uh, in, onto the Internet a resource that, that, that people can go to to hear the problems and the Bible twisting that's going on uh, in the main premise of uh, his entire book. And so we're going to be listening to his um, his part one from his uh, recent sermon st- series entitled Sun Stand Still, and the name of the sermon is uh, A New Way to Pray. Apparently that's his claim, is that um, this whole Sun Stand Still thing is a new way to pray. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We've got a lot of ground to cover. It'll probably be a long program because I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the Scripture, kind of untwisting the things that Stephen Furtick is twisting. So make yourself comfortable. Now, now I did a long sermon review yesterday. I'm doing a long one today. Tomorrow will be a shorter sermon review. I'm going to be re- tomorrow on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to be reviewing a, a, a Bill Swirla sermon uh, dealing with money. Um, 
that I thought is would be important to get out this week, especially in light of the sermon that we reviewed yesterday from Life Church in Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, I think it would be a great um, counterpoint to what we heard yesterday, but that'll be on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So I just wanted to let you know that. Okay. Um, hmm, okay. What do I want to do first? All right. We're going to do the email first. So uh, with that, um, let's dive into the program proper. Make sure you make yourself comfortable. Again, we don't have a problem if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is not against drinking. It's against drunkenness. It's that, actually, that is the case. And uh, Jesus himself was a drinker, so you know we don't, we don't have a problem with drinking. But again, you know, enjoy God's gift responsibly. That's probably the best way to put it. And of course, fuzzy bunny slippers are in order if, if the weather is cooling off in your neck of the woods. Those of you listening in Southern California, yeah, y'all had like 110, you know, 111 degrees yesterday. No fuzzy bunny slippers for you. I just want to let you know that. So, all right, let's uh, dive into the program. All right, uh, Wes writes from uh, uh, Valiant, Oklahoma. Valiant, Oklahoma. The subject is uh, man overboard. By the way, I, I I type this fast when I do emails, just yeah, with that kind of rhythm too. All right, Wes writes. He says, uh, "Chris, I, I, I've been listening for about three months or so, and ninety nine point eight percent of the time, I find myself giving a hearty amen to your critiques of seeker drivel preaching and laugh like a mental patient preemptively whenever you fire it up, fire up the fractured fairy tale." Thing. <laughs> you you you. <laughs> You laugh like a mental patient. I think I do too. It, the problem is, is that you're not being recorded when you do, and I am. I'm sure if somebody put a montage of my cackle uh, together, that I would pretty much sound like I've lost it. But I. But the thing is, is that I may have. So I just want to let you know. Anyway, he says, he says, all right. So, um, but a couple of times in the last couple of months, you've touched on the issue of baptism. Hmm. And in my opinion, gone too far on the topic. Really? I've gone too far. <laughs> By the way, I just want to let you all know that Wes is a Baptist. Yes, it, it, it is revealed somewhere in this email that Wes is a Baptist. And that, that's okay. We have lots of Baptists who listen to the program. Anyway, so he says, he says, I've gone too far on the topic. He says, almost all of your content is useful to all who strive to be faithful to the gospel and hold to an orthodox confession. But on this topic, you've been just a little too, here's the word, are you ready? Sectarian. Yeah, I've been sectarian when it comes to baptism. He says, that's, well, at least that's what I believe. Okay. For one instance, he says, con- uh, concerned if memory serves right, a-, a church in the St. Louis area that was setting up tanks in their parking lot and inviting people to be baptized willy-nilly. Uh-huh. He says, while this practice deserves critique, I, I believe you could have offered su- such without drawing such sharp lines that they made someone like me uncomfortable. Now, Wes... I want to I, I want to confess something to you. One of my goals on the program is to make people uncomfortable. Okay, I think that being uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. 
Okay, because when we're uncomfortable, it does tend to challenge us to open our Bibles to see what the scriptures say. Okay, now, no, no, so the charge against me right now is, is that I've made you uncomfortable and that, well, I've been too sectarian. Okay, all right. No, let's see. Anyways, um, he says, um, you addressed the issue again recently and sarcastically asked if a church was requiring people to be rebaptized. Mm -hmm. While I again recall there being merit to your criticism, you again promoted your sacramental view. So I've been sectarian, sacramental, and I've made you uncomfortable. Okay. And I think this is to the detriment of a program such as yours that ought to have a broad appeal to all gospel-loving people. Now, I don't begrudge you your view, though I think it is an error, and I appreciate that you hold your convictions with integrity. I just think some of the more sectarian aspects of your confession have the potential to damage unnecessarily the appeal your program has. My near contributions illustrate that I can't help wondering if I'm alone in this. Okay, now, Wes, you've brought up a great – you've this is a great email. This is exactly the kind of email that I enjoy getting. Okay, now – want to point something out here, okay? The reason why I bring up the baptism issue is not because I'm trying to convince people to hold to a Lutheran view of baptism. That's not it at all. What I you got to kind of understand where I've been and where I am on this issue. Let me, let me let me explain. Okay? I was I spent a large portion of the latter part of my childhood in the Free Methodist Church and in the Nazarene Church, and, and basically evangelicalism as a whole, okay? And um, I'm absolutely 100% convinced that what I was taught regarding baptism was absolutely not true, at least at that point in my life, okay? And how did I come to this conclusion? I came to this conclusion, well, uh, over a course of time, and I've got to admit I changed what I believe the Bible teaches about baptism begrudgingly, okay? I must admit I was furious that the Bible didn't clearly support what I had been taught about baptism. This is not a Lutheran issue. This is not a sectarian issue. This is a biblical issue. This is a Bible issue. This is a Christian issue. And one of the things that I have come to believe it, through my study of God's Word and church history, that American evangelicalism have a peculiar and non-biblical view of baptism. And, I, and one of the things I want to do on this program is to challenge that view and that doctrine, not to be sectarian in the sense that I'm trying to uh, you know, basically say, Lutherans rule— Baptist rule. That, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to say at all. Okay, Instead, I'm trying to get people to be uncomfortable and open up their Bibles, crack them open, and, and wrestle with the texts. Okay, Now, I know the big, the, the big issue, the big dividing line has to do with, um, with infant baptism versus um, uh, believer's baptism. I don't think that's really where the line is. I, in, in as I've studied this issue and as I've looked at what the you know what people are teaching about this, I don't think that's where the line is at all. I think the real line is whether or not baptism is God's work or baptism is our work. 
Okay, that's I think that's where the real line is. In other words, is baptism law something I do to obey God or is it gospel? Something God does to me or to the one being baptized and it and that it the the baptism that in baptism, God delivers what he says it delivers in the scripture. Okay. I, I, I look at this from a completely different set of questions. And so um, I do understand that I have a lot of people who listen to this program who are not Lutherans, who are Baptists, who are, you know, all across the denominational spectrum. I, I get that. And I do think it's important from an integrity point of view, uh, you know, and I, this is one of the reasons why I say this on a, on a semi-regular basis, is that if you want to know what I believe, um, I will not hide it from you. In fact, if you want to know what I believe, go and get yourself a copy of uh, the uh, Lutheran Confessions, the Book of Concord. Uh, Concordia Publishing House has a fantastic reader's edition of the uh, Book of Concord. And even if you're not a Lutheran, I'm telling you, this is edifying reading. It's edifying reading, even if you're not a Lutheran, because these are documents that were forged in the heat of theological battle during a time when you could die for your Christian confession, when you could die for confessing that you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. I mean, the drama that is in some of these documents is unbelievable, okay? Uh, for instance, uh, if you've if you've ever read, I mean, uh, my favorite document in the Book of Concord, by the way, is the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And if you read the history behind that thing, and um, you, you read the history behind that document, and you know, and how that all came about, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. But anyway, I digress. So, I think it's important that you, all, you know, and basically say, listen, I, I am this. Here's what I believe, and I want you to know, I hold my beliefs with an open hand. And what I mean by that is, is that if you can show me from the clear teaching of God's word. If you can show me from the clear teaching of God's word using sound hermeneutics, grammar, and, and, and correct exposition of the text, that the, one of the doctrines that I hold to and subscribe to is not correct, I will repent. That's one of the, and the reason I say that is, well, because I've found myself over my lifetime having to repent of many things that I thought were true, that I just kind of believed because I was told them that I found out upon later examination that that wasn't the case, okay? That being said, what I would like to do, okay, is take a few moments to review some passages that discuss baptism, okay? Now, when I was growing up, what I was told is that baptism is something that I need to do to be obedient to God, and that the purpose of baptism was to show the world— to, to show the world that I had made a decision to follow Jesus or to become a Christian or whatever, okay? But it was it was an act of obedience, okay? And that God didn't do anything in, in baptism. God, no, no, no. God was just one of the spectators in the audience checking off that I had been obedient to him regarding this particular ordinance, Okay. Then when I went back to the scripture at the prompting of my Lutheran classmates when I first showed up at uh, Christ College Irvine, which is now Concordia University, um, they drove me back to the scriptures and 
forced me to deal with what the texts said, with what God's word said. Okay, so let's let's take a look at some of these texts. If you have your Bibles, let's take a take a look at Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. This is Peter's great Pentecost sermon. Okay. And um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but again, this is it's good to go and do this context, 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 okay? So I'm going to start at verse 36. Peter's kind of winding down here, um, uh, and uh, listen to what happens here you know, at the end of this, at the end of this uh, sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made, this is talking about Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Now, this is important. When Peter says be baptized, that is in the passive voice, okay? This is passive in the Greek. It's not something they're to do. It's something that they're to have done to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and it is for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I would like to bring in a, a non-biblical source at this point to kind of make this point, and that is is that when you look at what the historic Christian church, the church Catholic with a small c, not large C, Roman Catholic, but the church Catholic has confessed regarding baptism, and this is plainly taught. And when you read the Antinician Fathers, oh, it's this, this, is, this is the view, okay? But when we read the Nicene Creed, the third clause of the Nicene Creed, we read, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, the question that is on the table at the moment, I'll put it there, is, is it biblical and correct to say, well, if somebody, if a uh, if a, a new believer or a non Christian were to come to you and say, "Hey, what's that baptism stuff all about?" is all about, and you said, "Well, listen, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins." Now, I know the Baptist in you is absolutely just going, Bleh! right, Wes? Yet that's exactly what Peter said. Baptism was for. That's what the church has confessed. Baptism is for. And when you understand that in the Greek, that when Peter says repent and be baptized, it's passive, 
not active. It's not you doing it. It's you receiving it. It makes sense. Now, wait a second. If baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, that means God's doing something, right? Right. Okay. Let me give you another passage. Okay. Romans chapter 6, something I refer to frequently. Okay. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is verse 1. Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Would it be biblical if a non-believer asked you about baptism, say, hey, what's that baptism about, baptism thing about? And you said, well, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, and in our baptisms, we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Am I speaking biblically and accurately about baptism? Yeah, I am. Because nowhere in the text does it say baptism is something that you do to obey an ordinance of God so that you can show the world that you've made a decision to become a Christ follower or any such nonsense. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. Okay? Let me give you another text. Colossians chapter 2. Okay? Um, I'll start at verse 8. Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. Um, or according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay. Let me read that part again. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Would it be biblical and correct for me to say if a non-believer came to me and said, hey, what's that baptism thing all about? And I said, well, you know what? Baptism... Uh, in baptism, uh, if baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, that in our baptisms we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, and in our baptism, uh, well, we're buried with Christ, and, um, well, our hearts are circumcised by the hand of God, by Christ himself. Would I be speaking biblically and correctly about what baptism is and does? Answer, Yes, I would, because I'm using only biblical words regarding what baptism is and does. Who's doing the work? God is. The verbs make it clear because it's all in the passive. Okay? Now, there's other passages that I can bring to bear. 
Okay, and I might want to just take a moment to do that. One in particular comes to mind, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, particularly um, verse 5, but let me read it in context. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I think Titus chapter 3, verse 5, in light of what we know about what baptism does or what God does in baptism and what he delivers for the forgiveness of sins— that we're united with Christ, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, our hearts are circumcised by Christ. And, well, here here it says that baptism is a washing of regeneration. Would I be speaking biblically and correctly about this? By the way, this is exactly what the church confessed about baptism, not only in the scriptures, but in the I mean, from, a, from its entire history. Read the church fathers. This is how they discuss and talk about baptism. I think they got it right. I think the people who are nowadays saying, "Listen, baptism is a is, a, is us showing you know showing the world that we've made a decision for Jesus." Show me a text that says that. One would would suffice. Show me a single text that says that. I'm showing you what the text says. Now, the reason one this is one of the reasons why I'm a, a Lutheran. One of the reasons why I'm a Lutheran is because bat, this baptism stuff matters. It matters because this is a gift from God. And I think this doctrine regarding baptism is absolutely not only consistent with the scripture and what it teaches. Because I couldn't, I mean, I wasn't doing any interpretive work here. I'm just telling you what the text says. It's a simple view. The, what the text says is what baptism does, and what God does in baptism. It's, it's, it's not really hard. But I think this matters because I think this view is consistent, truly theologically consistent with what the Bible teaches regarding monergism. That God is the one who acts. God is the one who regenerates. And he regenerates. And he regenerates through means, okay? Let me show you one more, one more, the kind of the pinnacle verse, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3, okay? Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God through a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter the ver the, and the, just look at the grammar noun verb 
baptism saves you. If a non-believer came to me and said, Chris, listen, what's this whole baptism thing about? If I were to say, well, here's what the Bible says about baptism, that baptism that is for the forgiveness of sins, that baptism, well, it's, it's a washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5, that in our baptism we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that our hearts are circumcised by Christ, and as Peter says, baptism saves you. Would I be speaking biblically and correctly about baptism? Answer, yes. I am speaking biblically and correctly about baptism. And this is what the church has historically confessed regarding baptism. And I think it is unwise and unsafe and not smart to teach other than this. And you're saying, well, you sound sectarian. Right. I do. And I think this matters. I think it's important. And I think it's important that if we're going to talk about baptism, we start speaking biblically about it. And there's certain things that are that people believe regarding baptism because they've been told it and they've passed it along to other people. And I don't think they've spent a lot of time critically examining whether or not what they've been taught regarding baptism actually is what the text says. Now, I haven't engaged in any interpretive work. All I've done is told you what the text says. If you disagree with what I'm saying regarding baptism, fine. Show me from the Bible that baptism is uh, uh, me obeying God and showing the world that I've made a decision for Jesus. Make the case and make it biblically. But as for me, until I can see strong, compelling evidence to the contrary, I'm going with what the text says baptism is and what God delivers in it. And this, because of my what I've studied in church history, this is what the church has believed from its beginning. In fact, this is still what the majority of Christians around the world believe. I don't think it's wise for us to depart from this. I don't think it's wise at all. So I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but that's what I do here. I would not be doing a service to you if from time to time I wasn't stepping on your theological toes. Now, I may be wrong. I could be totally wrong here. But the only way I'll be convinced that I'm wrong is from the clear teaching of the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Man, I don't think I'm going to get to all the news stories today. Warning. Only God's Word gets to decide what baptism is, who does it, and what's done to you during it. Not you, not me, not anybody else. Only God's Word. (laughs) Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every single month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And you're going, that's it? $6.95? Yeah, that's it. Only $6.95. And you, but, but, but that's not very much. Oh, but no, it really is. Yeah, see, because as the number of people who join our crew increases, what it does is it levels out our giving on a month-to-month basis so that we can plan for and budget our expenses properly and, well, you know, grow with, you know, as our expenses grow because they've been growing because, well, our audience has been growing quite a bit, actually. 
Uh, anyway, that's a different story. But anyway, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now, moving along here in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and, well, we've got to do this. Ah, from the XP Media website. I think this is, her name is Melissa. I'll I'll get her last name here in a second. Yeah, have you been looking for some guidance regarding vision? Yeah, I mean, do you need some, you know, guidance from the folks at XP Media regarding vision for the kingdom of God? Well, (laughs) have we got a treat for you. Um, Hello, everyone. I want to talk to you today about vision. Okay. Really? This is Melissa from XP Media. There's somebody out there, actually a few of you, that have had this great vision in your head about what you want to do for the kingdom. Okay. So it, they, they, there's, should we be vision casting once we get the vision in our head of what we want to do for the kingdom? Her name, I'm sorry, it's Melissa Fisher. Her name is Melissa Fisher. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it to come to pass. Yeah. But you're not really seeing any results of anything. It's just kind of there. Yeah, wow. It's like you totally read my tea leaves inside my um, my instant coffee cup. Well, the Lord has a scripture for you, and it's Habakkuk 2.2. Really? God has a scripture for me? Habakkuk 2.2? Let me turn there. Hang on a second here. Habakkuk 2.2. And the cool thing is because, well, um... Because I um, have a computerized Bible, I don't have to actually flip pages and you know and go through all the embarrassment of you know kind of flipping past Habakkuk and then you know flipping forward and kind of missing it on the way back. You know because it's a small, tiny little minor prophet book. Habakkuk two two uh, it reads, uh, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Yeah, um, something tells me that Habakkuk two two is not about some vision that's stuck in my head. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if I were to read this in context, that I would find out that this is about the vision that God revealed to Habakkuk to write down. Yeah, um, yeah. Let me let me read a little of context here. Habakkuk chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower to look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he who, uh, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, okay, I said this. Wow, wow. Okay, so um, yeah, this is about the vision that God gave Habakkuk, not me or you. Hmm. Okay, Melissa, continue. Write the vision and make it plain on the tablets that he may run who reads it. Yeah. So what the Lord is showing you to do is to start writing that vision down. What? (laughs) 
So you want me to vision cast on paper. Got it. Okay. It makes a big difference because sometimes it's just yeah. in our head and yeah. we think about it occasionally. Yeah, but yeah. But it won't come to pass unless we start really putting it on paper. Right. Yeah. See, so if you're – if um, if the vision that's stuck in your head isn't coming to pass, yeah, it, you, you might have, you know, vision um, – you know, thing it, it's not being birthed, and so um, uh, you, you might have vision constipation. Yeah, and so the way to clear that up is, um, yeah, if you if you're suffering from vision constipation, you, you know sometimes you need a laxative when things are you know they're not well. You, you understand what I'm saying? Um, when that happens, if your vision's stuck um, and you need it to kind of you know loosen up so that it can kind of move through the system. Write it down because that's the way that your vision could – yeah, vision laxative. It's writing it down. Okay. Start praying over it. Yeah. And then start watching the Lord do little things step by step. Because, yeah, because uh-huh. – Because that vision is not going to come to pass overnight. Right. When you pray into it and really keep your eyes open, God will start to make those little baby steps right. on the way to making that greater vision. Yeah, because that's what Habakkuk 2 2 is supposedly telling us. So today, if you've got vision, or if you. I've got vision. I've got. No, sorry. I <clears throat> didn't mean to do that. You've had vision that you. Who can ask for anything more? Sorry, I didn't mean to do that again. Forgot about because it didn't happen right away. Just start dusting those old things off, those dreams, those visions. Start writing them down. Make them plain. Mm-hmm. Pray over yeah, them. Yeah. And let's see what the Lord does. Yeah, let, let's. Right. So if you're suffering from vision constipation, you got a vision stuck inside of your head and it's not coming to pass. Yeah, the the thing that'll clear that right up is just write it down and then pray into it. Yeah, I, I don't know how you pray into the vision, but you know that. So, but the, the, apparently there's some kind of special technique for doing that. Pray into, and then God will start to you know kind of loosen things up little by little, and, and then you know it, the vision will just pop right out. It'll happen that way. Yeah. <sighs> Man, you just can't make this stuff up. Anyway, um, yeah, w- quick news story uh, before we, uh, yeah, maybe I can get a little bit more in hand. From the uh, Christian Post, headline reads, uh, Four Arab Fest Street Preachers Acquitted. That's right. Dun, 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 dun. That's right. You, you know those, uh, those four street preachers who were arrested in Michigan for apparently disturbing the peace? Well, the good news is that they have been acquitted. That, that's right. They uh, they have been found uh, not guilty and uh, of disturbing the peace. Yeah, the story is by Lawrence D. Jones of the Christian Post. And just a little bit of the story. It says, a jury in one of the most densely populated Muslim communities in the United States has acquitted four Christian street preachers. All but one of the charges laid against them earlier this year. Nabil Qureshi of Virginia, Najin Mayel of California, Paul Rezkalia and David Wood, both of New York, were all acquitted of breaching the peace on Friday. Mayel, however, was found guilty of failing to obey a police officer's order, but uh, her one-day jail sentence was waived uh, for time served. The four evangelists associated with the Act 17 Apologetics Ministries had been arrested back in June as they were attending the 15th annual Dearbornistan 
I just made that up. It's Dearborn Arab International Festival, along with over 300,000 from across the country. Though the preacher said they only spoke with people who wanted to speak with them, one of the volunteers at the festival contacted the police and accused the four of disturbing the peace. The volunteer, Roger Williams of Florida, said Wednesday in his testimony that the group made him, quote, nervous and that he felt intimidated, though Williams' complaint was only one police received uh, four preacher, the four preachers were approached and soon after arrested for disturbing the peace. Notably, only one, Qureshi, had actually been engaged in civilized conversation with those who approached him after recognizing him from the year before or after catching sight of his shirt, which read, Jesus always loves you. Two others, Wood and Rizkalia, were reportedly only videotaping the dialogue. The four, 18-year-old Mael, was also videotaping but doing it from afar. Mael, who said that she was standing around 100 feet away from the others, was charged with failure to obey a police officer's order after uh, uh, Corporal Captain Brian Kapanowski told her to put down the camera, and she instead held her camera in place as she backed away from him. Quote, when someone is subject of an investigation, they have to stop what they're doing and answer my questions, Kapanowski told jurors Wednesday, according to the Detroit Free Press. The four preachers and their attorneys, however, have alleged that the arrests were a retaliatory act over last year's run-in with the ministry, which is led by Qureshi, a former Muslim, and Wood, a former atheist. Last year, the preachers recorded an embarrassing video of strong-arm tactics used by festival security guards, noted Richard Thompson, president of the chief counsel of the Thomas Moore Law Center, which defended the four. This time, the first thing police officers did before making the arrest was to confiscate the video cameras in order to prevent a recording of what actually happened, he added. Dearborn Mayor Jack O'Reilly Jr., however, says he believes the preachers were pulling a publicity stunt on YouTube in order to raise money. Right. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so the good news is is that these uh, folks have been acquitted, and uh, you know that's that's absolutely great news. Now that's all I have time for today on this first hour of fighting for the faith. Uh, tomorrow I will talk about the uh, Rowan Williams and his support for gay bishops, and we'll kind of go from there. So uh, we'll we'll get to that tomorrow. I'm way behind. I've been doing a lot of talking. Hmm. Anyway, that's what I do. That's what I do. All right. So anyway, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of the sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. I consider this to be a very important sermon to be reviewing. And I pray that this sermon review will get into the hands of people who need to hear it. And those are the people who are listening to Stephen Furtick regarding this whole sun stand still nonsense book that he's written so that they can see that this is not biblical. That this is a complete twisting and mangling of God's word that takes the focus off of what Christ has told us to do. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. Pastor Stephen Furtick presiding. 
The name of the sermon is Sun Stand Still, A New Way to Pray. This is part one of his uh, latest sermon series that will, well, basically, it's to shill for his new book is what it comes down to. We will be reviewing this sermon and maybe more in the series. And the reason why is because, folks, Stephen Furtick is, um, well, he's leaving uh, Christianity. He's leaving Christian Orthodoxy at this point and wandering off and moving closer and closer and closer to Joel Osteen-esque prosperity-type preaching, and it's the same methods that uh, the prosperity preachers use to mangle and twist God's Word and teach you a false gospel. Yeah, that's what Stephen Furtick is doing here. And so uh, what I'll be doing is making this sermon available, uh, sermon review available as a standalone so that uh, the Word can get out and people can point to it on Twitter and Facebook and other places and you know, so that people can see what's going wrong here. So uh, let's kill this music. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Stephen Furtick on um, Sun Stand Still, A New Way to Pray. I, I love the fact that he's doing a sermon series on this because it makes it so that I don't have to read from his book because it would be a little bit more dry. Here's the basic premise of his entire book. Here we go. For the Elevation Church Podcast, here's today's message from Pastor Stephen Furtick. Well, if you have a Bible with you today, would you turn to Joshua chapter 10, verses 7 through 15. Joshua. Actually, if you have your Bible, please open to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. One of the things we do here is we expose how people twist God's Word. And the, one, the, the simplest way that people twist God's Word is they take stuff out of context. And so if you have your Bible, uh, turn on over to Joshua chapter 9. In just a, f- a few minutes, I'm going to be reading uh, this story regarding the sun stand still in context, which will help you see what's really going on. And because uh, Pastor Furtick, well, he's lifting this little tiny bit of this this piece of information out of its context and as a result of it, he's turning it into something that it never was intended to be. Let's continue. Chapter 10, verses 7 through 15. In my Bible, I keep a note every time I preach a sermon, and I highlight the passage that I preached from. The thought behind it is one day I'll give this Bible to one of my sons, and it'll be kind of a roadmap of where we've been as a church together. And... uh I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I preach from a real big Bible. I feel like uh, maybe it gives it a little bit more weight, and it's got some great study notes in it. And I, uh, I kind of document the different things that God does on certain days, like two weeks ago when 581 people gave their lives to Jesus. I wrote that down in my Bible by the passage that I preached. I always want to remember that. I never want to forget 581 people giving their lives to Christ. Now, I want to point something out. Every time I critique one of these major seeker-driven rock star kind of guys, you know, the hipster pastors, you know, with the messed up haircuts and the and the rock star pants and clothes and all that kind of stuff, you know, the one thing they always hide behind, well, how dare you criticize what we're doing or what I'm saying because 500 people gave their life to Jesus last week. 
number one, the Bible uh, nowhere talks about people giving their lives to Jesus. Um, that is the heresy known as Pelagianism. Okay, yeah, sorry. Look it up if you're not sure what it is. Uh, the doctrine of original sin makes it very clear that nobody gives their lives to Jesus. Uh, you're not sure even further on it. Study those who've written against Pelagianism and the biblical arguments that they've marshaled against it. Yeah, fact of history. Pelagianism, heresy. has been. It was declared a heresy in, what, the 4th century? Yeah, the, the, the church has never taught decision theology or giving your life to Jesus theology. And, and that being the case here, I don't care how many people show up to your church. I don't care how many people raise their hand at the end when you play the sappy music and tell everyone to bow their heads and, you know, and, and, and then you, you know, you, you guide them in some kind of premeditated prayer, you know, where, you know, at the end of it, you know, if, if you prayed this prayer with me, raise your hand and fill out a card. Okay. That does not excuse any pastor or anybody regarding mishandling, misapplying, and twisting God's word. Yeah, sorry, that doesn't give anybody a pass. You know, the reality is um, more people listen to this program, Fighting for the Faith, more people listen to this program on a daily basis than show up to all three locations of, uh, of, of... uh, Stephen Furtick's church on any given Sunday. Yeah, it's true. In fact, more people listen to this podcast on a daily basis. More people listen to this podcast on a daily basis than show up at New Spring Church in uh, in uh, Anderson, South Carolina, on a you know so yeah, on a weekly basis. So yeah, these guys can sit there and you know throw their numbers around as if that somehow exempts exempts them. It doesn't. And just because I have more people listening to this this podcast than show up at uh, at Elevation Church does not exempt me at all when it comes to handling God's word. If somebody were to you know to basically call me out and say, "Rosebro, listen, dude, what's wrong with you?" Why are you mangling God's word this way? God's word doesn't teach X, Y, and Z, and you said that God's word does. You are in error. You need to repent. If if my response was, how dare you challenge me? Don't you understand that I've got X amount of thousands of people who listen to my podcast on a daily basis? Who do you think you are? I mean, God is obviously blessing what I'm doing here. And you saying that I'm not handling God's word correctly, well, that y- y- the reason why you're doing that is because you're just jealous. Yeah, you know how many times I've heard that from people? You know, when I critique one of these guys, the reason why you're, you're, you, you are critiquing these guys is because you're just jealous because God is blessing their ministry. Well, if numbers is the basis for determining who's blessing whom – well, I have nothing to be jealous of. Like I said, I have more people listen to this radio program on a daily basis, on a daily basis, than show up to Elevation Church on a weekly basis to all three of their uh, their camp high, all three of their locations. So why would I be jealous? Hmm? This is not about numbers. This is not about jealousy. This is about whether or not somebody is properly handling and teaching God's word. That's what this is about. If what Stephen Furtick is saying in the sermon pans out with a correct reading of God's word, 
then I have no, no I have no qualms. In fact, um, I've actually publicly praised Stephen Furtick and gave him a glowing sermon review earlier this year. In a sermon in which he properly handled God's word and properly and biblically admonished people to be in the word of God. You don't believe me? Go back to the Fighting for the Faith uh, archives at my website, fightingforthefaith.com, and in the search box, type in Stephen Furtick. Okay? And you'll find earlier this year, I reviewed a sermon. Uh, I think it was in January, January or February of this year, I reviewed a sermon that Pastor Furtick preached, and I gave him glowing glowing reviews, and I thanked him for what he did. In fact, at the end of the sermon review, when it played, Pastor Furtick called me personally to thank me for the positive review. Yeah, absolutely true. So let's get this just out on the table. Numbers do not excuse anybody. Me, Pastor Furtick, Perry Nobles, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, uh, Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. Numbers do not excuse them when it comes to properly handling God's word. I don't care how many thousands of people show up to your building every week. If your pastor's mangling God's word, he is to be called to repentance and to be forgiven for that sin. Because it's the sin of taking God's name in vain. That's what it means to teach falsely about God. So Pastor Furtick doesn't get a pass. And you're thinking, well, why are you doing this? Partly, two reasons. Number one, number one, realistically, I don't think Furtick's going to repent. I pray that he does. But So number one, I do this so that these pastors who are twisting God's word would repent and be forgiven for their sin and no longer do that and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance by properly handling God's word in the future. As for those who refuse to repent and refuse to properly handle God's word and continue on falsely teaching about God and twisting and mangling his word, my hope then is is that those who are caught up in these churches, who are caught up in the moment of the celebrity who's... uh, out there preaching this way, that they would hear the truth and that their eyes would be open and they'd realize they're not being taught correctly about God. They're not being pointed to Christ. They're being pointed to themselves. They're, be, they're, they're learning how to twist God's word rather than to properly read it. And that this matters. It matters. It is not, it, it, twisting God's word is a crime. It is a sin. And it's not a victimless sin. It is one where, First of all, the the one twisting God's word will be will be judged more strictly, and those who believe falsely about God they could end up in hell. So this what what's at stake is people's eternal souls. So again, the reason I do this number one so that the pastor would repent and teach correctly regarding God and stop twisting his word. And if he won't, then that the people in the congregation would hear the truth and call the pastor to repentance. And if he won't repent, leave and find a church and a pastor who will take the time to properly handle and teach God's word. And constantly, week after week after week, day after day after day, point them to Christ. Point them to his cross. Point them to the forgiveness of their sins. Because if they're not doing that, then there's something seriously wrong. So anyway, just want to let you all know that. Let's continue. It's really special. Well, right above this passage, 
where God makes the sun stand still that I'm going to read to you today. I have the date 9-2307. Who's he preaching about? That's when we did our first sun stand still series at the church three years ago. It was a few months before that that I read this miracle for the first time. I guess it had always been in the Bible, I suppose, but it was the first time I ever really saw it for what it was. And I fell in love with this concept immediately, and it meant so much to me. I knew I was going to preach a series about it. I did not know that it would eventually become the organizing metaphor and the central subject of my first book. And I had no idea that it would become one of the most defining series that we've ever had in our church. There were about 2,500 people coming to Elevation. We've almost tripled in size since then. But I still remember the testimonies that started coming in after I preached this sun stand still message for the first time of couples who were on the edge of divorce and God restored their marriage, children who are far from God and God brought them back home, of people who needed a financial breakthrough and God showed up in a major way, couples who struggled with infertility and who had gotten bitter with God who became pregnant or decided to adopt, but one way or another became parents for the first time. On and on and on and on I could go. All right, let me pause there for a second, and I'm going to just ask a couple of questions and kind of you know steer your mind in the right direction here. And this is something that I'm going to come back to at the end of the sermon. So I want to warn you ahead of time that this thought that I'm beginning here will be completed at the end of the sermon. Um, Furtick mentioned uh, relationships in trouble, rebellious children needing financial breakthrough, and people who are struggling from infertility as examples of those who need uh, who need to pray the who need to learn these sun stand still prayers. Okay, quick question: divorce and broken relationships. What's the cause of that? Answer: Our sin is the cause of that. Uh, rebellious children. Uh, children who rebel. What's the what's the root of that? Answer: Sin. Um, uh, those who are mishandling money and uh, you know and you know and, well we can even go bigger than that. Um, how come all of us have to toil by the sweat of our brow in order to make a living or to eke out a living? Answer: Our sin, infertility, and you know problems related to that. What's what's the co- what's the root cause of that? Answer. Our sin. So, biblically, what's the solution to the root causes of all of these? Uh, the root cause of all of these problems. The root of this is sin. So, divorce is a result of our sin. Rebellious children are a result of our sin. Uh, having to f- toil by the sweat of our brow, mismanaging finances—that's a result of our sin. Infertility again is a result of our sin. Is the solution to our problem, uh, then, the root of our problem, that we need to learn how to pray sun stand still prayers? No, what's the, the solution the Bible offers regarding the root of all of these problems? It's not sun stand still prayers. I'll, I'll, mention, I'll talk about this again at the end of this sermon review. Our church has seen God make the sun stand still, and it is such an honor to be able to share this message with you However, it's a challenge because I've shared it now for the last three years all over this country and really, I guess you could say, even preaching it in Africa all over the world. 
And I've written a book about it, and I won't say I'm tired of it, but it can become difficult to keep it fresh. And I knew that I could come up for the next four weeks and talk to you about Sun Stand Still without ever studying or praying about it because I've done it so much. But I wanted to give it to you in a fresh way. I wanted to be able to speak from my heart, and I wanted to be able to give you something new um, because you are my first priority. Before I care about selling books or speaking at conferences, I care about this church. And so I wanted to approach Sun Stand Still from a fresh angle, but still keep the same message and introduce you to it maybe for the first time. And I think God has given me a way to do that. What I'm going to do is read the passage, and I'll fill in some of the details that you'll need to know, just the basics about historically what happened in the context of this great miracle. And then I just wrote down over the course of this last week seven or eight of the reasons that this miracle means so much to me. I've been asking the question, why does this particular miracle of all the miracles in the Bible mean so much to me? And I identified the reasons that it's so special to me, and I hope to help you fall in love with this idea that God wants you to live a life of audacious faith, that he wants you to see the sun stand still over every area of your life. And what I'd like to ask us to do today at all of our locations in honor of God's word is to stand to our feet, and I'll read this passage, and then I'll share with you as many of my seven reasons as I have time to get to why this miracle means so much to me, and I'm praying that. So he's going to read the text, and then he's going to give you up to seven reasons why this miracle means so much to him. Okay. What does this sound like? This sounds really familiar for any of you who've spent any time in a so-called life group or small group Bible study. Yeah, it, the, the the study goes something like this. We're going to we're going to read the we're going to go to Joshua chapter 10 and we're going to read 7 through 16. Jimmy, will you read? Okay, I read. Okay. Thank you for reading, Jimmy. Now, Jimmy, why don't you start us off? You you're the one who read the passage. Think about this. What does this passage mean to you? Oh, okay. This passage means to me. This passage means to me. This passage, and then you go around the circle, and everybody pools their subjective feelings about the passage and, and answer the question what does it mean to them? This is not how you read the Bible. This is not how you learn what God is communicating through the scriptures. What the passage means to you is absolutely irrelevant. What is important is what did God intend to communicate in the passage? What does the passage mean? Not what does the passage mean to you? Because God intended for the passage to communicate the same message to every reader. This whole idea of reading the Bible as, well, what does the passage mean to you? Completely mangles the Bible because the what a passage could mean, well, there's six billion people on the planet. Basically, there's six different, six billion different meanings to a particular passage when you approach the scriptures this way. This is not handling God's word correctly at all. No, pastor, your job is to correctly and clearly con- convey 
the meaning of the text, the me- the one singular meaning that God intended to communicate in the text. Today, wherever you are, God would cause the sun to stand still over your life and speak to you in a very powerful, powerful way. Joshua chapter 10, verse 7. At all of our locations, if you're ready to hear God's word preached, say amen. Amen. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going to Betharon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. If I didn't say... Okay, I want to point something out here. This is the beginning of the series. He's not preaching through the book of Joshua so that people can understand, you know, what God did in history to preserve the children of Israel and thus preserve the promised seed, the one that was promised to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised. Yeah, see this... You know, the Bible contains historical narrative, but you completely misunderstand the Bible if you don't understand that that story in the Old Testament, all of those stories, as this history unfolds, is following the scarlet thread from the Garden of Eden all the way to the cross. The scarlet thread of history following the line of the Messiah and the ways in which God miraculously acted on behalf of Israel and all of us to bring the promised one, Jesus, into history so that he would live as our substitute a perfect and righteous and sinless life and die as our substitute on the cross for our sins. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, do you ever wonder why the Bible doesn't talk about the history of, you know, other more important and bigger nations and empires at this time? I mean, Egypt was you know, far more impressive, you know, politically, powerfully uh, than Israel ever was. Okay? I mean, the the reality is is that when you watch the history channel, I mean, I'm still fascinated by all the, the specials they do on the latest things that they're digging up in Egypt. I mean, Egyptian history is fascinating. I mean, here in Indianapolis, we had King Tut's treasures come through recently. Lots and lots of people showed up to go and see those. Okay? I mean, when was the last time you, you know, the, you know, the Israeli Antiquities Division went on, you know, a road trip to show us the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the great artifacts of King Hezekiah? Yeah, okay. So I mean politically, I mean from a world history point of view, his, uh, Israel has has been a two-bit player in from a world history point of view. But when it comes to our salvation and God acting on our behalf in history for our salvation, Israel is the only place where it's happening. That's where all the action is. Okay? Why? Because it's through Israel, it's through the Jews, it's through the descendants of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's through 
the descendants of those men that Christ comes. And so when you read like in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. As you're reading that genealogy, you should go, God, you know, a lot of these names really sound familiar. Well, duh. <laughs> the reason why they sound so familiar is because all of those cats are like the uh, the guys who were written about in the Old Testament. So you missed the whole point there. So, but so here's Stephen Furtick. I mean, starting his sermon series, he's not preaching on Joshua. He's picking up in the middle of the story, picking up in the middle of the story, okay, and not giving you much backstory at all. And he's lifting this tiny little episode out, and that's the only thing you know. That's it. Hmm, There's a problem. If you don't put that story back into its fuller context, you miss the whole point. But I think that's the point of what he's doing here. It's so that you will miss the whole point because Pastor Furnick has discovered a new way for us to pray. That's what Sun Stand Still is all about. It's giving you a new way to pray. Now, hang tight. I told you to go to Joshua chapter 9. So hang tight. I'm going to get there in just a minute. But let's let's, uh, listen a little bit more. Say those words correctly. Don't even act like you know the difference either. You have no idea. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Betharon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Isn't it funny that you can do all you can do, and God can do more than you can do even in just a, a, a supernatural way? God did more than they did, but he didn't do what he did, divorced from what they did. That didn't make a lot of sense. I'll- no, in fact, it's 180 degrees backwards. Um, let me uh, let me play that little s- snippet again here, and uh, let me correct Pastor Furtick. And God can do more than you can do even in just a, a, a supernatural way. God did more than they did, but he didn't do what he did, divorced from what they did. Uh, no, that's the completely wrong focus. They couldn't do what they did apart from God. Yeah. And he- <laughs> Um, Because immediately before this story, we have the story of uh, the Israelites taking Ai. And you see, if if you read the book of Joshua, you have, you know, basically the death of Moses, the installation of Joshua as the leader of Israel. And Joshua, in name, points us to Christ. Okay, because it's not the law that leads us into the promised land, which Moses really represents. He's the prophet of the Torah, the law. But it's Jesus, Yeshua who leads us into the promised land. I mean, all of this has really important meaning when it comes to Christ and the gospel and the incarnation and the fact that all of this history is pointing to and is the story of Christ, okay? So we here we have Yeshua. That's, by the way, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name that Jesus had. If you were living in, in Israel during the time that Jesus was growing up, let's say you you know you were one of the townspeople of Nazareth, you wouldn't have known him as Jesus. You would have known him as, oh yeah, you're Yeshua. You are Yeshua Ben Yosef. You're going Ben Yosef. What's that? <laughs> Glad you asked. Okay, Ben Yosef. Ben means son of, and Yosef is his father. So you would have known Jesus as Joshua Ben Joseph. That's the Americanized version of it, okay? That's Jesus' name, Joshua. So, I mean, Joshua 
in more ways than you can imagine, again, is directly connected to and points us right to Christ. Okay? But, so, Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land, and we learn from Jude, who is the brother of Jesus, that the reason why the Israelites didn't get to go into the promised land is because of their lack of faith. The generation that left uh, Egypt didn't get to go into the promised land because of their lack of faith. Yeah, they read the book of Jude. It's only one chapter, and this is exactly what it talks about, okay? And so God lets that generation die off. Moses doesn't even get to go into the promised land, and that's not an accident. That I think that is completely on purpose. Um and uh, and so it's Joshua who's taking the children of Israel into the land promised to them by God. And it just so happens that that's not a vacant land. It's not like there's a big vacuum there and there's no people there. Instead, there's all kinds of people living in the land of Canaan. And we learn from history and archaeology that these were some wicked, wicked people. Okay, their religion not only revolved around opiates and sex, okay, their religion also um, involved sacrificing human beings and children to their deities, to their sex gods, to their fertility deities. I mean, these were, oh man, this, and so what God is doing here is through judgment, he's judging these pagan Canaanites He's judging them through the means of the children of Israel who are going to come and kick them out. Not just kick them out. It's not that they're going to vacate the land, but God wants them, because of their wretched sinfulness, to be utterly judged to the point that all of them are dead. Yeah, that God wants Israel to exact his judgment on them. He's raised up Israel to punish the sinfulness of the Canaanites. Okay? And so, first town to go, Jericho. Okay? Jericho, gone. And God's the one who, who won that victory, obviously. But then what happens is, is that the children of Israel go to Ai, and they lose. They lose the first battle. And it's like, oh, no, what are we going to do? All right? Read the story. Go back and read the book of Joshua. You'll see what I'm talking about. They, they, they kind of panic at this point. If, if the Lord doesn't go before us, I mean, how are we supposed to, uh, what, what's going on here? And it, it turns out they needed to inquire of the Lord, and it t- turns out that somebody, one of the children of Israel, did something that they weren't supposed to do. You know, when Jericho fell, God wanted everything to be devoted to destruction. Nobody was to take nothing for themselves. The whole thing belonged to him, Okay. But there was one guy, and uh, he found some stuff that he liked, and he f- took it, plundered it, hid it, you know, dug a hole, hid it under his tent, and uh, as a result of it, God was displeased with the entire community of Israel because of this one man's sin, and they were defeated by Ai. So God exacted His justice and His punishment of this man and his entire family because of his sin and disobedience to God. And then the Israelites destroyed Ai. Okay? So you got Jericho gone, Ai is gone, and what do you think's going on in the land of Canaan at this point? The rest of the cities are going, what are we going to do? I mean, 
I mean, their heart is melting inside of their chest. They're absolutely fearful because, you know, who's, I mean, this is, I mean, from their point of view, I mean, these are the children of Israel who were led out of Egypt by all of these miracles, all of the t- the plagues of Egypt. Pharaoh died. His armies were, were drowned in the Red Sea. I mean, this is all a mess. Okay. And so they're freaking out. What are we going to do? We we want we want to live. We want to survive. We don't want these people to come in and kill us. Okay, that's where the story picks up. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to Joshua chapter nine. You now have a better idea of the context. And may I strongly recommend to y'all take the time to read all of the book of Joshua, and do so by going back and reading from Genesis all the way through to the book of Joshua so that you can see the arcing storyline here of our salvation in Christ. This is the story of Jesus. Okay, Now, so Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as soon as all of the kings were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, when they heard of this, this is the destruction of these other cities, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They, on their part, acted with cunning, and they went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all of their provisions were dry and crumbly, and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, "'We have come from a distant country.'" So now make a covenant with us. Okay? But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? Well, they can't. Okay? They're not supposed to. They're supposed to punish these guys. Okay? Um, and, and God didn't call them to make a covenant with any of the inhabitants of Canaan. So they said to Joshua, Well, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, well, from a very, very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins, uh, they were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours, uh, of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Y- yeah, um, verse 14 kind of gives us the big problem here. They did not seek the Lord's counsel regarding this matter. Joshua made peace with them. And he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. 
So what happened is, is that these guys from Gibeon basically put on a a, a, a farce, a charade, a a show, if you would. They were fine actors, and you know convinced Israel to make a covenant with them, to promise them not to kill them, and that they would be their servants. And they didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they actually lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now, the cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Baaroth, Kiriath-Jerim, uh, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all of the leaders uh, to all the congregation uh, said, we, quote, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest the wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, drawers of water, and all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So the folks of Gibeon, they're alive, and they're now the servants of Israel. So Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, we are we are very far from you and and when you dwell among when you actually dwell among us now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants and cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my god they answered to Joshua because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the lord your god had commanded his servant moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you so we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Okay? So that gives you an idea of what is going on here. Chapter 10. Now, as soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, the king of Hebron, to Piram, the king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, the king of Lachish, to Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, "'Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon.'" for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem and the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all of their armies and encamped against Gibeon to make war against it. <laughs> How dare you make peace with Israel? What do you think? We need you. Help. So we continue. So the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, 
Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Okay. Who's giving these guys into the hands of Joshua? God is. So Joshua came up against them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord drew threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Who's doing the fighting for them? God is. Now at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. This is important. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Let me read that again. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. 
But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Machedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its kings into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did this did it to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. And Horham, the king of Gezer, came up and to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him with his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they captured it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king and its towns, and every person in it, he left none remaining as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it and captured it with its king and all of its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all of their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. That puts this story in its immediate context. You see how that little snippet fits now in the grander story. And the important verse said, there had never been a day like it, nor has there been a day like it since. This is a one-time supernatural miracle because the Lord was fighting for Israel. The Lord was fighting for Israel. And what you what do you what do we learn about God here? We learn about God's holiness. We learn about his justice. We learn about his hatred of sin and his punishment of sin and his mercy. Because the Israelites were sinners too. And yet God had mercy on them and forgave them. Not because they were obedient but because of Christ and his shed blood on the cross for them that was even being applied to them at that time and their faith and trust in him, in Yahweh, for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Yeah, this story does. By the way, I mean, again, what does the text say? There has never been a day like it before or since. This is a one-time important miracle in the salvation history recorded for us in the Old Testament. It's not about you. It's about what God has miraculously done for you. Because in fighting for Israel, God is fighting for you. He was fighting for you. Why? Because in protecting Israel, he was protecting the seed. Because Jesus at this time, where was Jesus? He was the unborn great, 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 great grandson of one of the men in Israel at this time, one of the sons of Judah. That's where Jesus was. Yeah, I mean, by not pointing us to that and taking this passage out of context, Furtick is already doing something he should not be doing. He's twisting God's word. But let's continue now with the sermon. Now that you know it's fuller context and how it plays into your salvation, let's uh, now find out what uh, Stephen Furtick is going to do with this. That didn't make a lot of sense. I'll clarify that when I get to the sermon in a moment. Now, here's where I really want you to focus your attention. Because up until this point, maybe um, this seems just like another war story in the Bible to you. But here's where it gets special. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. And here's my verse, y'all. It's my life verse. It's what I want to see God accomplish in our city, all over this world, and in your life. Oh, son, stand Still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of Ijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. Then, in the, in the middle of this incredible epic battle, God summarizes the whole deal one more time, as if to make sure we really believe that something like this could actually happen. The uh, whoa, 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 So that we could actually believe that something like this can actually happen? No, 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 no. So that we believe that this actually did happen. Not that, like, listen to what he said. Let me back this up. This is important. I mean, words have meanings. Listen to this again. There's the, this is part of the twist. It's subtle, but it's important. God summarizes the whole deal one more time, as if to make sure we really believe that something like this could actually happen. So, the, that we, so that we can believe that something like this could actually happen. Wrong. So that we would believe that this actually did happen for our salvation. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There is never been a day like it before or since a day when the lord listened to a man surely the lord was fighting for israel you think so when the sun stands still in the middle of the sky surely the lord was fighting for israel then joshua returned with all israel to the camp at gilgal let's pray father make this message so fresh to me and to us that it's like the sun stands still for the first time ever we don't want to just read about what you did one time. We want to experience what you're doing right now. Cause the sun to stand still in these moments and speak to our hearts in a powerful way. In Jesus' name. And everybody said at all of our locations, amen. amen. 
You may be seated. Why this miracle means so much to me, and I would also say why. Here we go again. Why this miracle means so much to me. See, this is not how you read the Bible. I, I think it should mean something to you, too. Why this miracle means so much to me. Number one, it demonstrates the magnitude of a defining moment. These points aren't going to come up on the screen because I just want... It, it demonstrates the magnitude of a defining moment, huh? Wanted it to... But doesn't it point us to what a great and powerful God we have? To feel more like I was sharing from my heart than I was giving you a classroom lecture. So you write down what you want to write down. Something stands out to you, you write it down. But this is just an introduction to the process we're about to go through over the next couple of... Yeah, this is not a hermeneutical process. This is not an expository Bible preaching process. This is a process of pure, unadulterated subjectivity. Why this verse is so important to me. What does this verse mean to me? That's not how you read the Bible. ...of weeks as a church. See, not only am I preaching sermons to inspire your faith, but I'm going to challenge you to begin to identify the area in your life where you need the sun to stand still. Now, here's the deal for Joshua. Okay, notice what he's doing here. He's allegorizing this now. I need you to identify the, the area in your life where you need the sun to stand still. Okay. Um, okay, let's, let's let him uh, give some examples here. He made this agreement with a group of people called the Gibeonites. And he shouldn't have made the agreement with them, but he did. He made a mistake. And because he made an agreement with these people, he swore to defend them. And these five kings, these Amorite kings, came to challenge Joshua and the Gibeonites. So Joshua had to defend the Gibeonites, even though he never should have made the agreement with them in the first place. Have you ever been in a situation where you got yourself into the mess, but you needed God to help you out anyway? Like, God, it's my fault I'm in this debt, but that doesn't mean I, I don't need your help to get out of it. God, it may be my fault partially that my kids are acting this way, but, but I need you more than anything else, to look beyond my faults and see my need and help me out in this situation. Has anybody ever made a mistake where you needed God to step in and overlook what you did wrong? Here's Joshua. He made a mistake to make an alliance, and now he's having to defend his armies in order to protect people that he never should have made an alliance with in the first place. But here's what I've learned about God. He can turn your mistake into a miracle. He can take something that you never should have done to begin with and use it as an opportunity to show how he's a gracious and merciful and forgiving God. I think we ought to clap our hands at all of our locations for a God who can turn our mistake into a miracle. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, the problem here is, is that, that God had made it very clear that, uh, that he was going to give the children of Israel the, the land of the promised land. And that plan was moving forward regardless of the fact that, oops, they forgot to inquire of God regarding these so-called journeyers from afar who they established this covenant with. Now, I want to point something out here. Um, this, from about this point, that, you know, at this point, we're going, to sound, we're going to hear something that sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel, but already we've got a problem. 
he's asked the question, I want you to identify, you know, the the area in your life where you need the sun to stand still. Examples of stuff that he's talking, he's given already. Uh, He's talked about infertility. He's talked about relationships gone bad. He's talked about financial debt, misbehaving children. He's going to talk about, you know, uh, maybe career aspirations and things like that. So, you know, areas in your life where you, quote, need the sun stand to stand still. Wouldn't, if he was being consistent with the real context of this text, um, wouldn't it be more along the lines of identify the area in your life where you need God to fight for you or you need God to intervene in your behalf? Because here's the deal. Um, Infertility is not an impossibility, not with today's uh, technology. Infertility does not is not an impossible situation. Debt is not an impossible situation to get out of. You know, dealing with misbehaving children is not the impossible. In other words, uh, you know, a relationship that's gone bad, where you think things need to get repaired and there needs to be forgiveness. Um, you know, a, a marriage that's failing. Uh, getting you know turning things around is not an impossibility okay um that being the case uh the miracle of causing the sun to stand still is not is not is not even remotely remotely synonymous with uh getting your kids to behave getting out of debt dealing with infertility career problems relationship failures or things like that in fact to allegorize the the miracle of the sun standing still and then equating that to a quote so-called impossible situation in your life um, is to absolutely dilute and um, and take away the power of the impossible miracle that was performed in Joshua chapter ten. Okay, let me give you an example and why I say that. Okay. Um, millions of people heal broken relationships or, you know, there's reconciliation and, and healing. Millions of people heal broken relationships every year without God. Pagans are capable of doing it. So that being the case, you know, healing a broken relationship or romance or whatever is not an impossibility. It's totally within the realm of possibility and people do it all the time. Okay, getting a job promotion is not an impossibility. People, billions of people get promoted at their jobs every year around the world. It happens all the time and they do it without God, so to speak. You know, um, learning how to parent better. And learning how to discipline your children properly and to to parent in a positive way so that your children, uh, you know, that bad behaviors are properly and, and appropriately punished, good behaviors are rewarded, so that your children grow up and become respectable citizens. That's not an impossible situation. People do that every day, all the time, pagans and not and, and Christians alike. It's not an impossible situation. Infertility, it's not an impossible situation with all of the different, you know, uh, solutions available, in vitro fertilization, uh, adoption, all kinds of things like that. Dealing with the problem of not having children is not, quote, an impossible situation. It's a situation that can be resolved with multiple options nowadays. 
So to equate the sun standing still to dealing with relationship failures, uh, misbehaving children, financial challenges, career, uh, you know, you know, career unhappiness, um, is to absolutely water down and dilute and in a very real way tear down the miracle that really took place there in Joshua chapter 10. Because, like I said, millions and billions of people deal with these types of problems every day on planet Earth, and the, and the situations get hit, fixed and many times without people even appealing to, praying to, or seeking the guidance of God. You, you see the problem here? Let's continue. And it's in this defining moment where the sun stands still that Joshua sees God's power revealed like never before. In the book, I talk about when I was 16 years old and I had a page 23 vision. Uh, keep in mind, Joshua was uh, one of like one of the last people who actually left Egypt. <laughs> Joshua wasn't born on the uh, you know on the road to on the road to the promised land. Joshua was a young man. He was a pup. He was a young lad uh, when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt. Joshua saw the 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 plagues uh, that God wreaked against Israel. Joshua saw firsthand the miracle of uh, the uh, children of Israel being spared by the destroyer angel who came and killed all the firstborn sons uh, of Egypt. He saw the Red Sea parting. He saw Israel being led through the, prom- uh, through, through the wilderness uh, with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He saw the miracles. He saw the thundering peals of God's presence on Sinai. He saw uh, Moses' face veiled because of the glory of God. Yeah, I mean, if anything, Joshua is is held up to us as a man of great faith. And he over and again saw God's miraculous hand at work. And through his faith and trust in God and knowing that God in God makes good his word, he knew what God was capable of firsthand. And so when he finally did say sun stands still, that was basically in acting with the faith that he had given. Now, I'm going to point this out early on in the sermon, okay? Um, Furtick hasn't said it yet. He's going to say it, so I'm kind of preempting him. He's going to talk about the fact that sun stands still is a new way to pray, okay? That's really ridiculous because it's this doesn't really fit under the category. If you were to do a cross-reference, if you were to biblically cross-reference this account, Okay, this this account, you know, of sun stand still and him saying to the sun stand still does not actually have its cross reference with the Lord's prayer or with the passages that were where there's where there's prayer taking place. Okay, instead, the cross reference here, um, you know, I was kind of researching this prior to the program that the real cross reference is uh is is in the passage i think it's matthew 17 hang on a second let me pull this up on my bible here and uh my computerized bible i'm using accordance um uh let's see here it, where where jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed let's see 
Yeah, it's uh, Matthew 17. I'm going to start in verse 14. And um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, this is right after this is right after Jesus's transfiguration. So Jesus he goes up to the mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John's with, with him. He's transfigured before their their eyes. I mean that that whole incident where Jesus, you know, his glory is you know pops through, and um, and so as they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, we read uh, Matthew chapter seventeen verse nine. We read this, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, "Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead." And the disciples asked. Him, uh, then why did the scribes say that uh, uh, that first Elijah must come? They said, well, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Verse 14, and when they came down, this is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they, uh, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into water. And I I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. So what we're seeing here is is that this sun stands still event, it really has a cross reference in the teaching of Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. Okay? Because Jesus says to the disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move, okay? Or or in Joshua's case, you can say to the sun, stand still, and it'll stand still. Nothing will be impossible for you. But the important thing here is, you know, Jesus is basically talking about tiny, microscopic, mustard seed-like faith. You're thinking, Really? Yeah, and so what we're seeing demonstrated in the book of Joshua is Joshua's mustard seed-like faith. And this is a faith that has grown and grown and grown over the years as he saw God's miraculous mighty hand at work to save Israel. Okay? I mean, Joshua, it was Joshua and Caleb who went, who were part of the 12 spies who went to spy out Canaan. And they, Joshua and Caleb were one of the only two, they were the only two who gave a good report and said, listen, God has given them into us, into our hands. Let's go. And it was all, no, no, I don't know. And Joshua was thinking, what, what are you talking about? It's God we're talking. That God who led us out of Egypt, he's the one who said he's going to give us, let's take him. You know, because God's giving them into our hands. <laughs> Joshua knew that God can be trusted. Okay? And so another cross-reference of this would be like the story where uh, Peter and John are heading into the temple area, and there's a beggar there at, you know, in, in Jerusalem you know, at, the, at one of the gates there, and you know, begging for money. And Peter looks at him and says, you know, listen, silver or gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, I command you to stand up and walk. And the guy got up and walked. Okay? 
That's what we're talking about here. That's what's in play. The the sun stand still part is not technically a prayer. It's not technically a cross-reference with how we are to pray. It's never hold, held up as a model of prayer. Instead, it should be pointed to as an example of what Jesus was referring to here in Matthew 17 of this mustard seed-sized faith. Yeah, that's what's really going on here. Anyway, I I, don't, I, I preempted him in, in saying that, but I want you to hear you know, more from uh, Pastor Furtick. Here is uh, more of Stephen Furtick. Referring to the fact that I was reading a Christian book and I came across a sentence on page 23 that said, I despaired at the thought that my life might pass me by without God moving greatly on our behalf. And God used that sentence in my heart as a junior in high school to plant a desire that one day I would start a church in a major metropolitan city somewhere to reach people far from God. And look at us today doing just that. It started in a moment. Now, if God can make the sun stand still in a moment, I believe that in a worship experience like this, he can speak to your heart and define the rest of your life through the power of a moment. I love this miracle. Uh, God doesn't speak to our heart through the power of a moment. God speaks to us through his word. In a moment, God changed history. Number two, I love this miracle because it's the story of my life. And it's the story of this church. (coughs) What? He loves this miracle because it's the story of his life. No, it's not. That is not the story of your life or my life or anybody else's life. It's the story of the children of Israel and God fighting on their behalf to fulfill his promise and his word to Abraham. The story of Elevation Church, the story of Stephen Furtick, is God doing something way bigger than we could ever take? I, 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 I cannot believe the, uh, I mean, this is just pure narcissism. And that's what this is, pure, unadulterated narcissism. That story is not the story of Stephen Furtick or Elevation Church. It, And there isn't a pastor on the planet who was called by God to preach their story. Take the credit for. Look at me. Look at you, and then look at what God is doing. It doesn't add up. Turn to the person next to you and say, look at yourself. It doesn't add up. Yeah, right. It doesn't add up at all. This is, this is absolute narcissism. See, sometimes when I look at what God is doing in this church, and I realize that we've seen over 9,000 people make first-time professions of faith in Christ inside of a less-than-five-year history, It feels like we're living in a warp speed dream world. And that's really what this miracle represents. It's like God accelerates a victory that maybe could have happened naturally in a longer span of time. Here's the deal. Joshua is fighting this battle that he shouldn't have been fighting, but God helps him out anyway because he's gracious like that. The sun starts to sink and the enemies start to get away. Now, if they get away, then, then possibly they'll come back and hunt Joshua as he continues to take over the promised land, which God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, which Joshua was inheriting, even though Moses and the previous generation couldn't make it happen. But if these people get away under the cloak of night, maybe the victory will only be partial. And Joshua realizes God didn't call him to partial victory. He called him to complete victory. 
I'll say the same thing to you today. If you're just barely getting by, stuck in spiritual survival mode, just going through the motions, hoping you'll go to heaven when you die, but living like hell while you're on the earth, struggling with depression, battling with addictions, God doesn't plan for you to kind of win. He doesn't plan for you to pull it out in the last minute. He wants to win decisive victories in your life. Um, <clears throat> Jesus has already won that victory. Yeah, you've heard of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave on the third day for our justification. Yeah, that battle's already won. That's the good news we're supposed to be proclaiming. He wants to be decisively victorious in your situation. Anyway... Joshua throws his yeah. I just I want to point something out that that little little diatribe that just went on there sounds so much like Joel Osteen. It's spooky. Harry pass and decides that even though he's never seen it done before, if God created the sun, certainly he can call it into freeze frame. This is the original DVR. <laughs> Remember the first time you ever used DVR or TiVo? you don't have DVR or TiVo, I don't mean to make you lust. But uh, for me and my family, it's well worth the expense to be able to tell the show what time I'm going to watch it. I'm in control. I remember the first time I started rewinding and fast-forwarding shows, I felt like God. I did. I felt like I was in control of this universe that I had never been able to adequately control before. Now, God hits pause on the cosmos. That's bad to the bone. You serve a big God. He takes his pinky finger and says, okay, stops the sun in its tracks. The sun, people, the sun stops in the sky. Now, the skeptic in me has all kinds of questions. How did this actually happen? We all know that the earth revolves around the sun. So it encourages me to know that Joshua didn't even get his prayer right. The sun doesn't stand still. However this works out, God just hears Joshua's heart and he responds to his faith. And we're reading an an historical account of a God who can do anything. And he causes Israel to be able to win a battle at an accelerated rate. I love this miracle. This is a sun standstill church where we're seeing God do things inside of five years that a lot of churches don't get to see in 50. Okay, I want to point something out here. He's correctly identified one of the attributes of God that can correctly be exegeted from the story. But there's more to it than that. There is a lot more to it than that. And the reason I say this is is because what he's doing is he's focusing in on one attribute of God almost to the exclusion of the others. And if you put the the story back in context the way I've done already, uh, then you you realize that uh, what we're dealing with here is that there's more than just the attribute of God that he is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. Let me, let me give you a list of some of the other attributes of God that we can easily get from the Scriptures. Number one, God is eternal. Okay, He exists forever. He has no beginning and no end. He's always existed. Talk about one of the attributes of God is God's holiness. Uh, God is holy. That is to say he's eternally separate and distinct from all impurity. Okay? Um, separation, the uniqueness of, uh, you know, there's a, God's one of a kind, if you would. God is unchanging. He's immutable. 
God is um, God is infinite. He is all powerful. He is everywhere present. He is all wise. God is all knowing. God is self-existent. God is immaterial. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is just. God is sovereign. Uh huh. These are some of the attributes of God. Now, what what he's doing is is he's kind of really zeroing in on. One of the attributes of God, yes, God is all-powerful. However, just because God is all-powerful does not mean that God promises that you can call on his power to perform all kinds of impossible miracles anytime you wish. Everything must be in accord with his will. Everything must be in accord with his will. Okay, let's, let's go back to the AI incident for a minute. Okay, if is see it's God's it was God's will that Joshua and the children of Israel conquer Ai, but they in the first engagement they were defeated by the uh, the men of Ai because Israel sinned. Okay, so despite the fact that it was God's will, God who is also holy, sovereign, and just would not give the victory to Israel because of their sin. Okay, this is important to know. This is all part of the story. Okay, and God in this story was gracious, even though he they were supposed to destroy the men of Gibeon. You know, at that point, what happens is is that you know it would have been wrong for them, and the children of Israel would have come under the curse of God for murdering them when they had struck an agreement with them. So God honors the fact that they're going to honor their word. Okay. And despite the fact they didn't, you know, seek counsel, you know, seek his uh, counsel regarding it, and they acted without asking God, God would have been, I mean, all they had to do was ask God about these folks from this far country, and God would have said, (laughs) they're lying to you. But they didn't, okay? So God is forgiving and merciful, but also God is just. This is a story of God's justice and God's punishment of sin, because who is on the receiving end of, of this uh, uh, you know, of this uh, military action. Well, the people of Canaan, we read about all of that. And so what? one of the things that Furtick is doing is, is that he's keying in on only one of the attributes of God to the exclusion of the others. And as a result of it, we're getting a warped view of God. And he's making, he basically is trying to make it sound like, well, listen, God's all powerful and he wants to act, he wants to uh, fix all of your problems. Because every, every all of your problems, they're the equivalent of, of the problem of the sun needing the, needing the sun to stand still. No, they're not. And the reality is, is that um, God doesn't promise that He's going to fix all of your problems. There are Christian men and women who have misbehaved children. There are Christian men and women who, unfortunately, their financial situation is so upside down that they well they're going to have no choice but to declare bankruptcy. Yeah, and God's going to let it happen. There's some people who are well. They're the 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 diagnosis coming back from the doctor is going to be cancer, terminal, and they're going to be dead. So yeah, this is a misapplication of one of the attributes of God, and that is that God is all powerful, that He's omnipotent. This is a misapplication of the omnipotence of God in this particular case. And he's making basically making it sound like God is promising, you know, 
That if you have this big audacious faith that he's going to act on your behalf and he's going to make the, quote, sun stand still and fix all of your problems. Yeah, God doesn't promise that. That's why I love this miracle. Because you got to understand, we started this church with 19 people. And to have over 11,000 show up to worship on Easter Sunday, less than five years after we started the church, I give God all the glory. I have seen the sun stand still. You, can- you know, actually, I, I challenge that. You say you give God all the glory, but you sure do talk about yourself all the time. I, personally, I, just as an outside observer, Stephen, you really do take a lot of the glory. You can say what you want to, but I've seen the sun stand still. I have. Another reason why this miracle is so meaningful to me is because it's symbolic of all of the impossible things that we need God to do in our lives. Uh, No, it's not. It really is not. And to make it so is to really, really strip this unique miracle that, according to the text, never happened prior to that and has never happened since to strip it of its unique of its uniqueness and to, it, it really i mean equating it with the so-called quote impossible things in your life that really aren't impossible um is to really really tear down this miracle and to water it down and dilute it and to take glory from god in the process this is a great metaphor for whatever the impossible thing that you're believing God for happens to be. Is there a relationship that you need him to restore? Again, is restoring a relationship impossible? Pagans do it all the time without God. He can make the sun stand still. You may have lost a lot of time, but he can even redeem the time you've wasted and multiply it back to you through the power of grace. Where does the Bible teach that? Is there a career need or goal or aspiration that you have to glory? Yeah, because again, career aspirations or goals, that's, quote, impossible? I really, um, I've seen plenty of people in my lifetime who've started at the bottom and worked their way to the top. Who've taken the steps necessary to get that promotion at work and and got it. That's not the equivalent of making the sun stand still. Millions of people do this all the time. Glorify God, and you need him to do something that seems impossible to you. Seems impossible. Oh, yeah. This is the realm where audacious faith kicks in. And anything becomes possible because he- uh, no, this is the realm where misapplication of the of this biblical text basically turns God into a big genie, and uh, and this is the, a light version of the prosperity gospel. Uh, at the rate he's going, it's just a matter of time before he's a full blown Joel Osteen prosperity heretic. Here's another reason I love this miracle. It reminds me that what seems impossible to me isn't even remotely difficult for God. See, uh, duh. I mean, again, if you understand the attributes of God, I mean, that's kind of like one of the basic definitional attributes of God. See, with God, there's no such thing as impossibility. With God, there, there's no such thing 
as a son, he can't stop. He who creates the sun can tell it where to go. Yeah, no kidding. Um, again, this is a misapplication of the attribute of God's omnipotence. Just because God is all-powerful and capable of doing what to us is impossible, and that with him nothing is impossible, doesn't mean that he's going to necessarily act on your behalf through this omnipotence. He may, in his sovereignty, choose to punish you. He may choose in his sovereignty to discipline you and to allow you to suffer and to experience failure and for a situation to be impossible in your life and ultimately that be as for your own good. He who creates the ocean can tell it, stop right here. He who creates the storm and the wind and the waves can still them. Yeah, I know, but logically, I mean, okay, work with me here. I'll put this out in syllogism for God is omnipotent. God can tell the waves to stand still. He can tell the sun to stand still. Ergo, logically, God, that means God's going to act in your behalf to miraculously work through a situation regarding your career. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. God may want you, I, no kidding here, God may actually want you to stay at the level that you're at in your job. You're going, well, how, how would you know? Because every time you put your hat in for your, your hand in for promotion, it's you're overlooked. Mm-hmm. And you can't find another job. You're stuck. And you're sitting there going, I don't want that. That's not the storyline of my life. I, I'm destined for great things. No, you're not. <laughs> no, there's, there's no promise in the Bible that you're destined for great things. You may be destined to be in middle management the rest of your life. <laughs> and you know what? And no matter what you do, no matter every time you try to uh, apply for a job at a different company or you apply for uh, uh, a promotion, it never, ever happens. You can't get another job anywhere. You can't get promoted. You're stuck. And it's God's will for you to do your work in the position you're at as if you're working for him. God and his sovereignty in that situation might be trying to teach you something very important. And rather than bucking against it and sitting there and praying your son stand still prayers, I mean, how would that prayer go anyway? I command you, Job, in the name of Jesus, I command that promotion to come to me. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It won't. God is the God of the impossible. Yeah, if God doesn't will it, if it's not in, according to his sovereign plan, it ain't happening. So now what are you going to do? You are creature. He is God. Because one of the other attributes of God is that he is sovereign. He is king. He's the one calling the shots. And he, in his calling the shots, gets to decide whether or not you get promoted or whether or not you stay in your job doing what you're doing. It's you sitting there complaining every day. I can't believe I have to do this every day. I can't hate my job, man. Uh, every day I have to drive 30 miles into work in traffic. And for, and my boss, he's a jerk, and, and I don't get paid enough, but I can't find another job anywhere. <laughs> you know what? In a situation like that, it just might actually be possible that God's teaching you to be thankful for the gift that he's given you of a job. You know how many people don't have one? 
You know how many people in this economy can't even find a job and they have to survive off of the generosity of other people? How dare you complain and be bitter and go to work and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble about your terrible job. Be thankful that you have one. We continue on behalf of his children. So what seems impossible to me is not even remotely difficult for God. Another reason I love this miracle and it means so much to me. And this is where I want to spend a few minutes because my goal over the next few weeks is that you would size up an impossible situation in your life. It could be regarding your kids. It could be regarding your business. It could be regarding your bank account. It could be regarding healing in your body. It could be regarding... This is a complete misapplication of this text. Regarding your calling that you need to receive from God. It could be regarding a prayer that's so personal that you've never told anybody about it. A sin struggle that you can't seem to get out of and is spinning you round and round and round and ruining your life. It, it, could, it could revolve around something that you want to see God break in your bloodline that has plagued your family for generations. It could involve somebody who's not even here at our church, but you want to see God bring them in. It- I'm telling you, this guy is sounding more and more like a prosperity preacher. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to grow his church as big as Joel Osteen's. Yeah, because he's sounding a lot like Joel Osteen now. Anything you want to pray about, you can pray about to a God who can make the sun stand still. And here's what I love about this miracle. It presents us with a paradigm of a whole new way to pray. No, it doesn't. This is not a paradigm for prayer. Okay? And I'm going to just ask the question straight up. Does Stephen Furtick actually think he knows better than Jesus how we ought to pray? I'm going to ask the question again. Does Stephen Furtick think that he knows better than Jesus about how we ought to pray? Can you point me to a single, single incidence of either Jesus or the disciples Praying sun stand still prayers. Yeah, when the, uh, the disciples um, came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, did Jesus say, when you pray, think about Joshua and the sun stand still prayer that he prayed? And what I want you to do is use that as a model prayer in your life. Knowing that I'm capable of doing anything and that, you know, therefore, you all you have to do is have the audacious faith enough to ask me for anything, uh, you know, and, and, and you know what? When, you ha- when I see that you have an audacious enough faith to ask me for the impossible, then I'll act in your behalf. No. Jesus said to the disciples when they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said this, when you pray. Say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus said to his disciples when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Jesus said, pray. When you pray, say. He gave us this prayer and taught us to pray. So we, by nature, don't even know how we ought to pray because of our sinfulness. And when the disciples who are perplexed about this, Lord, how should we pray? Teach us, this is what Jesus says to do. And notice in that prayer, let me repeat the beginning of it again. Our Father who art in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, listen, your will be done. Catch the sovereignty part there? Jesus tells us that when we pray, we are to pray God's will. Our Father in heaven, that we pray that his will be done. Now you know how you ought to pray. Sun Stand Still is never held up. Joshua chapter 10 is never once held up in all of Scripture as a prayer that we should model our prayer lives after. If Jesus wanted us to pray sun stand still prayers, I think it's pretty, well, pretty safe to say that when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, that he would have told them to pray sun stand still prayers. Instead, he didn't. He taught us to pray in a way that acknowledges that God is God, and even though he is all-powerful, he is sovereign, and he is God, and he is creator, and it's all about his will being done, not ours. Now, let's continue with the sermon. Sun stand still prayers are a whole new way to pray. And most of us need a new way to pray. Because I realized a few years ago that I pray some pretty dumb prayers. Now, I know that God loves to hear his children talk. And I guess we could say that God really doesn't need us to, you know, pray in any certain way because he knows our hearts. But have you ever prayed a dumb prayer like this? Wake up in the morning, try to have a prayer time and pray, God, just be with me today. Now, that's a nice thing, and if you want to pray that, you can pray that. It's a fine starting place. I'm not saying you should never pray that again, because probably what you mean is, God, let me be aware of your presence today. But I, I wonder if God ever thinks when we pray, God, just be with me today. I wonder if he ever uh, wonders aloud to himself. Interesting. I did not know that I needed your invitation in order to be with you today. As far as I know, I've been with you every day of your life. I've been with you when you didn't want me to be with you. I've been with you when you didn't recognize I was with you. But thank you for letting me know that it's okay for me to be a part of your life today. I appreciate it so much. I made the earth and everything that dwells in it. And I'm so glad you've extended an invitation for me today to be with you. How kind of you. I, I mean, I know God is, is, isn't as sarcastic as I am. Good thing I'm not God. But, but I just wonder, maybe if we're missing the point, as Christians, when we settle for prayers like, God, be with me today. Or I hear a lot of people pray this. This is a real Baptist thing to do. And I've spent a lot of time in the Baptist church. And I love Baptist brothers and sisters. But you'll hear Baptists pray sometimes. And at the end of their prayer, they'll say, Lord, if it be thy will. 
Did you hear that? He's mocking and basically saying that those Baptist friends of his that pray, if it be thy will, that they're somehow doing something wrong. Let me back this up, and then we'll correct it from the Bible. Brothers and sisters, but you'll hear Baptists pray sometimes, and at the end of their prayer, they'll say, Lord, if it be thy will. Now, once again, I think the heart behind that is fantastic. What you're saying is, Lord, I I don't want to get out of sync with what you want. So, Lord, I just want to acknowledge that sometimes my desires aren't necessarily your desires. So, if it be thy will. And I don't know why we put a little King James English in there. If it be thy will. It makes it more official, I guess. Lord, if it be thy will. You talk like that all the time, don't you? Honey, if it be thy will. Would you mind getting me something to drink, honey? If it be thy will. Could we grill some chicken this afternoon? Honey, if it be thy will. We don't talk like that except when we talk to God. And here's what God is not sitting up in heaven thinking. Glad you gave me an opt-out clause, because I was really nervous about that. Because I was sitting here thinking, that's going to be really hard, and it's not my will, but since you prayed it, i got to do it. And Oh, thank goodness you let me off the hook. God doesn't think like that. So here's the thing about sun stand still prayers. Sun stand still prayers, the kind of way that I want us to learn to pray over the next four weeks about all of the impossible needs in our lives. They don't have to be buffered by this cop-out clause, Lord, if it be thy will. Because guess what? Cop-out clause. The cop-out clause, Lord, if it be thy will. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Was it a cop-out clause when Jesus, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he is was betrayed and is about to be arrested. Jesus says, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Was that a cop-out on Jesus' part? Because Jesus was praying, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, please let it be so. I don't want to do this. This is going to hurt. But not my will be done, your will be done. Was that a cop-out? Do you think that God could have miraculously acted on Jesus' behalf to rescue him from being arrested so that he wouldn't have to be crucified? You bet your bippy God could have done that. But that was not the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father to crush Jesus for our sins so that you, you and I could be saved. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't end with your will be done. It begins with it. It's not a cop-out phrase. Yeah, there's something seriously, seriously wrong with Stephen Furtick's theology because it's not properly handling the entire concept that God is sovereign. Yes, he's all-powerful, but he's sovereign too. And it's all about his will being done. But honey, if it ain't his will, you ain't going to get him to do it no matter how much you pray. But if it is his will, no power in hell can stop him. Not even your mistakes can derail him. It's a whole new way to pray. It's a whole new way to pray. Oh, and aren't you so thankful that this, I mean, new and improved prayer, thanks to Stephen Furtick. And the Spirit of God working in his heart. We have a whole brand new way to pray. You don't need the Lord's Prayer. Now we've got Stephen Furtick's brand new and improved new way to pray. The Sun Stand Still Prayer.
And here's another thing I love about it. It teaches us that asking and acting go hand in hand. Notice this. God stopped the sun in the middle of the sky. But Joshua had to fight the battle for himself. God threw down hell. Uh, yeah, um, it says that the Lord fought for Israel. Hailstones, but he still commanded the Israelites to use their swords. Don't we sometimes divorce when we need a miracle from God, his part from our part? We say things like this, well, all we can do now is pray. That's dumb on multiple levels, and I've said it before too. Number one, prayer is not a last resort. It's a new... Now, this is the part where I agree with him. Yeah, that's right. He's, let me back this up so you can hear what he's going to say. Actually, this is true. Prayer is not a last resort. It's a nuclear weapon. All we can do is pray. Like prayer is the last kid picked in dodgeball. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Joshua says 13 words and commands the sun to stand in the sky. Prayer isn't weak. Prayer isn't anemic. Our approach may be. But this is an audacious prayer life I'm calling you into. And Joshua didn't pray for 13 days. He said everything he needed to say in one sentence. And then he got back to fighting. What I want to help you realize over the next couple of weeks, and I'm going to unfold this. I'm going to talk about things at a specific level. If you'll come back over the next few weeks, not only are you going to be the first to get the book, but I'm going to walk you through some specific ways that you can see God bring sun stand still prayers to pass in your life. I'm going to show you how even when the sun... Is it me or does he just totally sound like a salesman? I mean, really, that's what's going on here. He's shilling for his book. I'm going to teach you how to, you know, how to apply sun stand still prayers in your financial life. I'm going to teach you how to apply sun stand still prayers in your uh, in your married life, in your parenting life, in your yeah, that's right. And if you act now, I'll even throw in a free set of Ginsu knives. They cut through tin foil. And goes down. God can turn you into a miracle even when you don't see the miracle that you're praying for come to fruition. But you got to start with this: if you're going to pray and ask God to, to make the sun stand still. You'd better be ready to march all night. The Bible says that Joshua took his best fighting men and he marched all night and he devised and schemed and strategized. I think a lot of us think that God's going to drop our miracles down out of the sky. And so we pray sun stand still prayers that God would help us with our health, but we don't want to adjust our eating. Uh oh. Everybody got quiet. Let me talk about smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol because church people like illustrations about that a whole lot more than we like illustrations about eating tempers and attitudes and bitterness. Now, if you're going to pray that God would restore a relationship, you might have to be nice. Praying that God would bring your husband to Christ and you talk to him like he's a dog and you put him down every time he does something wrong. No, no, no. You got to ask God and then you got to act. You got you to gotta have the audacity to ask and the persistence to pursue. I am preaching this thing. But uh, wait, whoa, hold on a second there, dude. Um, I, I'm so glad that you're preaching against sin and, uh, and you're teaching behavior modification. Um, you're kind of skipping something, though. Jesus said, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. You're preaching repentance at this point, and you're, these are valid 
you know, valid sins that you're pointing at. Uh, women who are disrespecting their husband and talking them down. People who are overeating and other things like that. Okay, great. You know, great. I'm glad that you're preaching against the sins. Stop. You need to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of those sins. You need to point out the fact, Pastor, that those women who are talking their husbands down and disrespecting them, that they are sinning, and it's not enough. It is not enough that they change their behavior. And that that sin is a damnable sin. And that they need to not only repent of it, they need to be forgiven. They need to confess it as sin and receive the forgiveness and mercy of Christ won by him on the cross for that sin. Preaching just behavior modification is not preaching the gospel. This is just self-help. I, I, yeah, yeah. Because at this point, my question is, what, what's God's role again? You know, pray and then act. Okay, yeah, where, what's God's part again in this so-called impossible situation? What's the impossible thing that God is supposedly doing? Yeah, the, if you were to correctly teaching it, the impossible thing that God is doing is the impossible thing that Christ has done, dying and rising again for our sins and for our justification. Yeah, because that whole sun stand still thing, that really points us to the cross. Better than I ever have. This is my favorite sun stand still message I've ever preached. Tired of students praying that God will make the sun stand still when the teacher hands out the test. He can make the sun stand still when you do your homework every night when, 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 you, had, when you had three weeks to prepare for that test. And I can get some clapping from some parents right now. Who- uh, what's God's part again? Yeah. You want to back the preacher up? <laughs> oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. If it be thy will. Notice the mocking tone, yet Jesus taught us to pray when we pray. That's at the front end. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And he's mocking it. Finally, I'll share one more thing with you. And this is just an introduction. Folks, you don't want to miss a week of this series. I'm just trying to help you see that we serve a God who is a God of the impossible. He's big and he's bad and he can do anything you need him to do in your life. And this week, I just want to get you thinking about what is the impossible thing that you need to see God do in your life? What's that intimate need that you need God to fulfill? Uh, Let me explain the impossible thing I would like to see God do. I would like to see God Bring Stephen Furtick to repentance for this false teaching and for twisting God's word and for allegorizing this text and pointing us away from Christ and having the impertinence to you know to act like he's discovered a new way to pray and and to see him repent publicly for talking down the way Jesus taught us to pray to pray that God's will would be done. That's the impossible thing that I would like to see happen. Because the reality is, I can't bring that about. That only can happen through the working of the Holy Spirit, who convicts the world of sin and unbelief. And what Stephen Furtick is doing in this sermon and what he's done in his book, 
is blaspheme, blaspheme the name of God and to take God's name in vain and to mishandle God's word. And so the impossible thing I would like to see done is for Stephen Furtick to repent and to be forgiven for the sin of this sermon and his book. What's that impossible mountain that you can't seem to climb, that you need him to move out of the way? Where is it? Where's that point of pain where you've almost given up because it seems like it's never going to happen? Who's the person you care about so much who's so distant from God and it's going to be only through God's grace that they're brought back? Where's that place of struggle in your life where you feel like over and over again you keep falling down? Some of you feel like you're running out of time and the sun is sinking low. And you've almost adjusted your expectations to believe that God is no bigger than the accomplishments of your human effort. But I've come to raise the stakes on your faith. I want to remind you that faith was never meant to be a drug to sedate us through a life that we hate. So many Christians live in a state of chronic faith to sedate us through a life that we hate. Hmm. Yet the Apostle Paul says to slaves, yeah, if, I, you know, I keep coming back to this over and again because I think it makes the point. We Americans are absolutely narcissistic and self-centered. Bunch of absolute spoiled, rotten children. I'm bored. I hate my life. <laughs> There's no excitement. <laughs> yeah. Preach that one to a slave. Uh-huh. Well, the, the Apostle Paul says to slaves, who these are people who don't even own themselves, who work their fingers to the bone doing back-breaking grunt slave work from the crack of dawn and well into the wee hours of the night, they don't even own themselves. They have nothing to show for it. They, they, they have the worst sleeping quarters, eat the worst food. You talk about somebody who could potentially hate their life. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to slaves, Obey your masters as unto the Lord. Yeah. Where do you think faith comes in at that point? To sedate them through a life that they don't hate? Or a life that they hate? Hmm. Or maybe their faith comes into play as a hope. A hope for the revealing of the Son of God and for them to spend an eternity with God no longer as slaves but freed in Christ. Not only freed from the bonds of earthly slavery in this temporal life, but ultimately freed from sin, the devil, and death itself by the glorious power of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins and for our justification, came to earth and died on the cross and rose again to save us and to offer us a true and eternal hope. I can imagine that a slave who is a Christian under those circumstances, that their faith is not a drug that sedates them. Instead, it is a burning fire inside of their heart that gives context to the meaninglessness and suffering that they go through on a daily basis. 
when they're unjustly beaten, when the food that they're eating is garbage, when the clothes that they wear are thin bare, when the blankets on their bed can't even keep them warm enough through a winter night. That faith that they have sustains them through the worst of circumstances, knowing that Christ is coming, knowing that he will return and that they will no longer be slaves, but in the kingdom of God they are called sons and daughters, children of God, and that they can pray the way Jesus told them to pray, praying to Almighty God, our Father who art in heaven. And here, Stephen Furtick is belittling that faith, belittling those circumstances, and preaching a narcissistic, me-centered type of, quote, faith that isn't. Because true biblical faith, true Christian faith, is the same faith that sustains the slave as well as the freeman. It sustains the slave as well as the master. Whether your circumstances are awful or whether your God has blessed your life in such a way that you're experiencing peace and prosperity. Whether or not you're starving in Somalia and being persecuted by Muslims. Or whether you live in the United States, live in the suburbs, and commute every day to a middle-class job and you live in a middle-class neighborhood. If faith, the Christian faith isn't equally applied in all of those circumstances, it's not the Christian faith, because the Christian faith is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But that's not what he's preaching. He's preaching a prosperity message. And perpetual discouragement. And we walk around with what I call the ache of the ordinary, and we don't expect anything miraculous from God. And so we hold on to our faith like a snuggie. Or we swallow it down like an ambience just to help us get some sleep. Some stand still faith isn't like that. Some stand still faith looks in the middle of a situation that looks hopeless. And I don't care what you're dealing with today. It's not more difficult than this. There's nothing you can tell me about that you need God to do in your life that would be more difficult than him stopping the sun. But that's just child's play for him. And I need you to know that in all of this, Not only are we going to individually discover how to pray some standstill prayers and believe God for the impossible. This thing has the potential to launch a movement of believers all over the planet. Oh, he's trying to launch a movement now, huh? Because he knows better how to pray than Jesus. I hope his movement is stillborn. And I mean that. Because this isn't biblical Christianity, and this is not the Christian way to pray. The Christian way to pray is the way Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done. And that's what we're praying for. I'm praying that as this book gets out, that it will be read and and implemented by millions. I'm praying that churches all over the world would begin to see the kind of outpouring of God's Spirit that we've seen here at our church as the norm. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit would awaken His church to the false teaching in this book and that it wouldn't be embraced by millions, but it would be rejected as false teaching 
and his narcissistic, self-centered, me-centered misapplication of the omnipotence of God. Not the exception. And it only begins as we place ourselves in the middle of a move of God. Today, when you leave, you'll have the opportunity to join an e-group. I want you to notice that Joshua didn't fight this battle by himself. In verse 7, the Bible says that he went out with all of his fighting men. In verse 15, it says that when he returned, he returned with all of Israel. Sun stand still prayers may start with the faith of one, but they are sustained by the prayers of many. You've got to follow Jesus for yourself, but you can't follow him by yourself. And so this seemed like the perfect time for us as a church to launch what we're calling our e-groups. And e-groups are simply the way that we as a church break you down into smaller groups of people where you can hold each other accountable and care for each other and invest in each other and pray for each other. Because let's be honest, if all you're going to do is sneak in and out of here each week and hope that I can give you enough of a faith lift to get you through another Monday, you're never going to see the sun stand still. You can't fight this battle by yourself. Joshua couldn't, and you can't either. Even Jesus picked 12. So what we want to do so, I mean, the whole idea about Jesus picking the 12 disciples, that was the first small group. <sighs> Rolling my eyes. It was break you down into groups, and we've got this thing set up where there is basically not one of you in the room who can't find a group that you want to be a part of. I started announcing this a few months ago. We asked for leaders who would lead different types of groups, and what all of these groups will have in common is that the leaders of these groups are going to pray and invest and care for the members of their groups. And for some of you who have been whining since you came to church here about how nobody, nobody cares about you at this church. And I don't know how to get connected at that church. And well, I don't know how to, I don't know how to be involved in that church. I don't know how to be a member. Well, this is the closest thing we have to membership. You can serve, you can give, and you can be in a group. And, and today, uh, we have set it up to make it as easy as possible. Now, don't think that I'm just doing an, a commercial at the end of my sermon, like I did the sun stand still thing. Now, this is the sales pitch. No, 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 no. This is integral to you seeing God do the impossible in your life. If you don't have anybody there to hold you up, if you don't have anybody there to help you out, if you don't have anybody there to encourage you, guess what? The first time the sun starts to sink down and it starts to get a little dark, you'll want to give up. But if you've got some people to fight with you, you've got some people to stand with you, you can make. So I want to make this clear. You, you won't be able to see the sun stand still unless you have a small group. Yeah, I just want to let you know that. If you were thinking that you can see the sun stand still without a small group, well, then you've got a, another thing coming. And this is the beginning of the fall. Many of you are just checking back into real life for the first time in several months. Many of you are just attending this church for the first, second, or third time. And this is how we want to connect you to people who can help you walk with Jesus. And you know what? They told me there are over 300 different e-groups. If you, if you take all the e-groups at our campuses, there are over 300 different options for you to get involved. And in just a moment, one of our campus directors at each of our campuses is going to come out and share with you what you need to do. But I just wanted to take a moment and say, if you can't find a group that you want to be a part of, out of 300 different options, the problem might not be the groups. The problem might be you. 
And so you need to find somewhere where you can plug in. You might do it based on age. You might do it based on interest. We broke them down into categories. We got Bible studies, support groups, sports and recreation, business and career, marriage, parenting, pastoral affirmation, where you'll get around and send gifts to your pastor. Um, I don't think that's a group yet, but it should be. Somebody write that down. Um, and then within the categories, there's a fitness group for moms. There's a support group for women struggling with infertility. There's a college football group. Some of y'all are thinking, what does that have to do with Jesus? Um, a lot. Jesus likes college football. And besides, what we're trying to do is create multiple entry points. If you've been a Christian 34 years and you want to study the book of Revelation, we got a group for you. If you're just getting started in your walk with God and you can't stomach the thought of studying the Bible yet, but you could get together and pray with people, we think it's better that you get with some people who are on fire for God, even if you just watch college football to get started. There ain't nothing wrong with that. We got something for everybody. They got a mountain biking group. They got community outreach groups where you can just serve. You don't want to sit around and study. You want to serve. That's your gift. That's your passion. You can serve teen moms. You can serve homeless people and everything else in between. If you don't know where else to start, they told me there are over 180 Sun Stand Still small groups. They're going to be reading through the book, studying this material, discussing my sermons. That's a great place for you to start. But Yeah, they're going to be discussing his book, an entire small, 180 small groups dedicated to reading, not the Bible, but reading Stephen Furtick's first book, Sun Stand Still. Start somewhere because you cannot follow Jesus by yourself. And the kinds of prayers that God is going to call you to pray over the next several weeks, you're going to need some people supporting you. And we as a church want to provide that opportunity. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to pray for you. Now, normally I stop right here, but I want you to hear this. And I want to pray that God would use these next couple of weeks, not only to inspire your faith, but maybe there's somebody that's in your life and you could invite them to church with you next week. Next week is a very big week. Releasing the book, the very first copies of the book will be in your hands. And we're excited about that. But chances are you know somebody who needs this message just as much as you do. Right now I want you to... I can't think of any person, not one, on planet Earth who needs to hear this message. I can think of an entire church that needs to hear this message rebuked and corrected biblically, just like I've done. I want you to ask God where you are to give you the beginnings of your still prayer. That he would target that impossible need in your life. What is it? You know what it is. You may have multiple needs. It may be something very surface level oriented. There's nothing too small to pray a standstill prayer about, or it may be something that's been plaguing you all of your life. Yeah, again, listen to that. There's nothing too small for you to pray a standstill prayer about. What is this doing? It's completely diminishing the miracle in Joshua chapter 10. I mean, seriously. I mean, if, if the problem I have is toenail fungus... That's the big impossible thing in my life. And I'm equating God healing my, you know, get, giving me the solution to curing toenail fungus as equating that to the miracle of the sun standing still. I, I don't raise toenail fungus to the level of, uh, of, 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 of an impossible miracle. I diminish the impossible miracle of God causing the sun to stand still by bringing it down to the level of toe fungus. There's nothing too big to ask him for. So, Father, in Jesus' name, over these next several weeks, 
through that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power that stopped the sun in the sky for Joshua. May that power reach into our lives, stir up our spirits, make us able to believe you again. God, I pray for all of those today who are not yet a part of an e-group at this church, that they would find their place so that their faith can be encouraged and strengthened by the prayers of many. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. I'm glad Jesus made a cameo appearance at the end of the sermon in the closing prayer. I, whew, I was afraid Jesus wouldn't even get a real honorable mention. <sighs> Folks, this is not how Jesus tells us to pray. This is the exact opposite of it. And the fact that Stephen Furtick would dare to mock those Christians who pray the way Jesus told us to pray, your will be done. The fact that he has the impertinence to basically claim that he's starting a movement and that he's got a brand new way to pray, that should alert you to the fact there's something really wrong here. Something seriously wrong here. The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. This is not prayer in accordance with the will of God or with the way Jesus has taught us to pray. This is a misapplication of Joshua chapter 10, and ultimately this completely takes your focus off of Christ, puts it onto yourself, and all of the things that he's addressing keep you in your narcissistic sin and has you have a warped view of God that's not balanced. Yes, God is omnipotent, but God is also sovereign. Yes, God is gracious, and yet God is also just. We have to embrace all of the attributes of God if we're to correctly understand him, because the story in Joshua starting in chapter 9 and all of Joshua, is a story not only of God's power, it's a, it's a story of God's justice, and it's also a story of God's grace and God's mercy. And when you put it back in its full context, you see how God was acting on our behalf to protect the scarlet thread of the line of the Messiah so that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come to earth through the promised Lion of Israel to live a sinless life and die on the cross for your sins. Sun stands still. We've seen something greater than that. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead for our justification. Yeah, this takes us off of that and it it just suppresses the the full attributes of what God has revealed in that text. And you apply these things and, quote, pray these sun stand still prayers, I think, to your detriment. Because you're turning God into a waiter. You're turning God into a genie. And instead, God needs to confront your narcissism. If you are bored with your life, if you are tired of the ordinary, The problem isn't God. The problem is you and your sin. 
And this comes back to the point that I was making in the first hour that I said I would come back to at the end of the sermon. Remember the question I asked? What, you know, he's talked about, you, you need sun stand still prayers, or they've seen the answers to sun stand still prayers for people who were having uh, tortured relationships and experience, you know, get on the verge of divorce, people who had rebellious children, find, and people who needed financial breakthroughs and, you know, were struggling with infertility. Well, I asked the question, you know, what is the cause, what is the root cause of divorce? Answer, our sin. What is the root cause of rebellious children? Answer, sin. What is the cause of our financial mismanagement? What's at the root of that? Why Why is it that we have to work and toil by the sweat of our brow in order to eke out a living? Answer, our sin. What's ultimately the root cause of infertility? Answer, our sin. Is the solution to these problems a Hail Mary, Sun Stand Still prayer? No. The answer to the root cause of all of these problems is the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus was fighting for you in a greater way than when God was fighting on behalf of Israel, when the Lord was fighting for Israel. See, on the cross, Jesus was fighting for you. The solution to your sin problem and all of the different fruits of our sin that are produced in our life, divorce, rebellious children, financial problems, infertility, you name it, idolatry. I mean, all of the all of the the reason why everything is as screwed up as it is is because of our sin. The solution is not sun stand still prayers. The Bible doesn't pro- say the solution to that is sun stand still prayers. The solution is Christ and Him crucified for our sins and raised again for our justification. This whole new way of praying that Stephen Furtick has given us points us away from the cross, which is the only solution, the only solution given in Scripture for our sin and its consequences, for our sin and the fruit that it produces in our life. It's the cross, Christ and Him crucified for our sins and Him raised again on the third day. That's the solution. Not sun stand still prayers, not standing on your head, not holding your breath, not any of this stuff. And that's ultimately the problem with this book and with these types of sermons. They point us away from the only solution given in Scripture, and that's Christ. Yeah. In Joshua, the book of Joshua doesn't point us to sun stand still prayers. It points us to the great God who not only caused the sun to stand still when he was fighting for Israel, but who raised Jesus Christ from the grave on the third day after he was crucified for our sins. Talk about the ultimate impossibility. Yeah, and that's ultimately the problem. All right. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 
508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you would like to contact me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.